the football pod. Booing and the jeering and the anticipation. And then as he strikes it, there's that intake of breath. Because he puts the bloody ball 14 uh, yards beyond. The, the second he hits it, I knew we were under pressure. Like. Subscribe to the football pod on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. We go live now with uh, uninterrupted coverage of our continuing uh, celebrations of the homecoming to our Tralee slash Killarney slash somewhere in Kerry correspondent Owen Sheehan. Owen, good morning to you. Report, please. Good morning, Jar. How are you doing? Well, the croakiness in your voice gives you away straight away. How are you? You've got a bit of croak as well going on there. You, uh, Just, your you happiness know. for for Kerry seems to have, uh, I guess, proven itself over the last couple of days. I, I'm surprised. I listened in yesterday. I'm surprised. I, I was expecting some sort of funeral atmosphere coming out of OTBAM Towers, but that's not what happened. You, you did not listen in yesterday. That's a lie. You might have caught some of the clips on, on social. That's what, that's what my family do. They're like, oh, I was listening to you. Like, no, you weren't. You just, you just checked the Twitter account. You're exactly the same. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Well, I, to be fair, no, I did. Uh, I did listen to the section that you and Nathan spoke to the carry players in the hotel. I did listen to that in full. Okay, and that was that was quite good. You did a, you did a good job? Okay, an okay job. This is where we actually miss your knowledge of like the uh, under 15 game where they got moved from forward to defence, <laughs> and uh, that was the the sliding doors moment in their career that has now resulted in them being like the greatest new defender in the country. And uh, that's the bit that we just didn't have yesterday. Why do we not have it? Because you took the day off in fear that they were going to lose. That's what happened. You did not take the day off in anticipation of celebration. You were the one who was scared of the funeral. You were the one who didn't back his team to get the job done and come in and take the celebratory lap of honour. Instead, we're 24 hours out now and nobody wants to hear anything from you today, Owen. They've had enough... The papers are full of your carry people. We we, mm-hmm. we get it. It means a lot to you. You've got nothing but overpriced breakfast and football. It's fine. We understand it. Fair play to you. But you took the day off because you didn't back them. Oh, that's fine. I mean, like, uh, it's good that we're not going to have this conversation about, you know, what, what happened on Sunday because I guess it's all about 2023 now, isn't it? And uh, moving on to next year. And I, th- I think you got yared a little bit in a few of those interviews as well yesterday. Uh, well, there's, Jack O'Connor there's a, half half yard is all. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna compare it to the Dubs, but then everywhere else he's basically saying, "Look, this is it now. You all better get used to this. There's a new world order taking over." I, I was um, at the the homecoming in Clarny last night, and there was I'd say about half a dozen at least references to player X or Y who is going to win loads of All Irelands, or who is going to, uh, or that they'll be back again next year. Like that, that was the sort of thing that would get the biggest cheer almost. That you know, this is the this is the start of something. Like walking out of the stadium one more time by Daft Punk was playing, and there's a sense that you know there has there has to be a, there has to be a backup to this thing already. And um, on top of that, there probably won't be a quiet moment for these players for quite some time. By the sounds of things, I think it's quite a busy schedule. So um, I just hope. I just hope that they get the opportunity to enjoy it and enjoy the one in a row because that may well <laughs> I, be all it is. I know, I know. I think they're enjoying it. I think that um, the scenes on the Lewis, uh, the scenes at the Boar's Head, I think the the very mention of Ibiza or Vegas, there's definitely mm. like, you know, this this could be the longest winning party ever. And the, the best part about it is, is that like you can have like a two-month party and still be totally grand by the time the new season rolls around because of the split season. Yeah, there's there's club action this weekend, so that should be interesting. Like, uh, who will be 
uh, will, will it be the most uh, like um, inebriated sort of round of fixtures in Kerry GA history? Possibly this this I don't know it's a Saturday Sunday, but there's this championship I think uh, this weekend. So um, that that possibly puts the, the brakes on them for one day at least, and then the celebrations continue next week and probably fly off to Ibiza midweek next week. Uh, Muller Blee asks, has Owen just left D two? Seems it. What's the uh, carry equivalent of D two? Yeah. What what does what does seems it mean? I mean that's. Uh, uh, if, if if I was uh, if it seemed like I was uh, leaving D2, I wouldn't be on uh, this morning. I can put it like that. Um, no, I, I there was the, the D2 thing. Obviously, that would have been. I think that 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 was probably the thing that was the the biggest fear, wasn't it? That people probably looked at that and said, "Look at these people getting ahead of themselves." And I would suspect that there was a, a few people with that image saved in their phone that were ready to tweet it on Sunday night uh, if Galway didn't get beaten. Um, I, I, you guys were the ones who were paranoid about that, right? Because the whole country basically understood that there is always a party for the teams. It's totally fine. But the whole country didn't understand that. They did. They absolutely did. And, no, they and, and they mildly, gently took the piss out of uh, any of the Kerry people in their circumference. And the Kerry people immediately were like, well, this is, this is outrageous. Of course we had a party. We have a party even when we win. It's like, what? No, I didn't even mention it. I mean, that was certainly, as I got accosted by your, uh, your, um, entourage on Saturday night that was the first thing that was the first thing it was like ah you, you've been giving I was like no Tommy gave out it mildly about it I guess what I'm trying to say here is the level of paranoia was at an all time high on Saturday night I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a certain county that has lived absolute rent free in your head for quite some time here it's, <laughs> it's almost like you're it's almost like you're debating yourself in, in studio there like uh, I mean, well I mean you can you can bring all your all your buddies in if you want but there was definitely um <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, like, all, should, all the heavies are coming in. Should we publish the the WhatsApp conversation? I I realize you were off WhatsApp, except you made one exception at the second half for like brief moment to find an old message that you sent us from the semi final, where you were worried that they were going to cough up the massive uh, advantage they had in the semi final, and then it was like, okay, the team in green and gold, or Mayo yeah. basically was your uh, you you had fears. Well, of course I did. I mean, that's what makes the whole thing so. Um, so brilliant over the last two days is that it is just a wild wave of relief and I'd be surprised if you didn't get that impression off some of the players either and I, I think that like a few of them have alluded to that over the last two days as well that there has been a number of massive defeats that they've taken since 2019 in particular like they will feel that they should have an All-Ireland medal before this year and that's a pretty hard burden to carry feeling that maybe you didn't live up All-Ireland medals-wise to the potential that you've shown over the last three years in particular. So, of course, there was that. I mean, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, that like that there was concerns about an All-Ireland final, which Kerry were favourites for, because that comes with burden. But thankfully, we are not the high-performing athletes. We are the, the weak-minded, not psychologically trained people who just watch these games. So we can allow ourselves to, to get that way. But the players, it seemed, didn't allow it to affect their performance too much, because if it did... Uh, going behind early in that game, I think probably would have would have had a significant impact. Um, it did. It, I, I think it did impact their performance. Certainly, that was why they were nervy and snatching and stuff in the first half, and uh, I, then they come through it, which actually would would lead you to think that not only uh, are they deserving champions, but there's lots to build on. Like not to get too carried away here, but the age profile of the team is excellent, and also the significant improvement of many key players who kind of emerged as leaders who aren't the superstars 
but who could well be superstars of the next five, six, seven seasons if they continue to play at the level they've played at. We, we keep t- talking about how few goals were conceded this year and saying, oh, it's a collective responsibility. It's down to Paddy Talley's uh, play. But like talking to them yesterday, they were talking about the individual coaching that has made them better defenders one-on-one and more confident defenders one-on-one. So you add in good system, but you also have to factor in the fact that uh, some of those players are bigger, more mature, more physical, and they've now got the game smarts and the confidence that comes from being All-Ireland champions. And you must be feeling pretty confident about the birth of a new golden age. Like, maybe. Like, I, I, I think it's it's like very, very hard to kind of like zoom out and look at that, especially when they are just being crowned All-Ireland champions. I think there's like a real temptation to just be like, oh, well, this team is going to go and dominate football. I, I don't see one team dominating this next decade of football. I think like a golden age for Kerry right now could look like three, four medals over the course of, of their career. Like that, that would be a good return if we're going to enter a, a hugely competitive period. Like we can't forget that we've had, you know, three different All-Ireland winners in a row. We've had five different finalists over the last three years. You look at the the contenders that are probably going to be in the ne- in the mix next year. Galway are going to be back, but Toronto are going to be back after what happened this year with a new superstar kid talent. The Dublin situation is fascinating, and I would make them probably second favourites at the outset of next year. And, and a lot of people will be tipping them for All Ireland glory next year. And then you don't need me to go through the rest of the counties that have really interesting managerial shakeups going on with some counties with some ex- excellent players who've been on the precipice of All Ireland glory. So I, I don't subscribe to this idea that that there's going to be some sort of dominance, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be that there's not going to be more All Ireland's on the horizon. It's just a really hard thing to do, uh, like if we talk about 2023, to go and win two in a row at the first time of asking. Like very few teams do it. Like even the Limerick Hurlers, 2019, they get caught after their first All-Irelands. I think the that's dubs. a pretty good reference point. Yeah. The dubs, obviously. Like and and even 2013, like it's 2014 to get beaten. Like I know the Kilkenny thing, it's probably not that team, but they win 2000 and they can't come back to win an 01, except they, they win an 06 and they win an 07 and, uh, and on it goes. But Maybe that's not the best reference, but I think the Dublin and Limerick reference points, they show that the second year is really hard. But on the flip side of that coin, uh, the talents that they have that people aren't appreciative of just yet is is still very, very deep. And nobody was surprised to see Graham O'Sullivan perform the way he did on, on Sunday, but that was a sort of national arrival for him. There are a handful of other Graham O'Sullivans that are waiting to make their mark over the next couple of years if they get the opportunity. Um, but I, I, I think that there's just a, cu- a couple of positions maybe that they need a bit more depth in, but, but mostly that, that they're, they're well stacked. Yeah, and that was the point. that Moyles was making the, the bench is, is um, fairly thin at the moment, but actually over the next 18 months and two years, that those great minor teams will start becoming more mature and it won't just be the superstars who are making it from those squads. So anyway, I'm going to tell everybody what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock at 7.40 this morning here on OTBAM. Dermot O'Sullivan is going to join us at 7.55 to talk about the career of Brian Cody. Daniel Lambert from Bohemian is going to talk to us about the issue of all of the uh, young lads joining uh, League One clubs in England. We've got sports news for you at 8.40. Kevin Walsh is going to give us the Galway perspective at 8.50. Alan Quinlan back in studio for the first time in a long time at 10 past nine. And uh, more reaction to the end of the Brian Cody era from two of his chief lieutenants uh, talking with Joe on the show. Um, lots, of, uh, lots of people saying, um, long day Owen. Owen looks fresh, fresh as stale bread. Uh, what was it like? It was very, very good crack, to be fair. It was like one of those, it was like just a big wedding was like the last couple of days, that just trying to soak it all in, trying to chat to as many people as possible. That's that's what the whole thing was. Um, 
it's bad but people are saying I looked like uh, stale bread to be honest because like I'm actually not feeling that bad at all it, it, it wasn't like this this massive bender for two days it was just like a very very happy couple of days where as I say just trying to, to soak it all in on both nights they and, don't know uh, that you'd lost your voice kind of about 15 minutes into the game and this oh, is yeah. that's all this is this is this is match related but like I know you were texting me yesterday looking for like gossip from the night and all that and there generally would be from, from an All-Ireland final night and it was it was tame as as there could be as, as you could possibly imagine on Sunday night, and then last night was was fairly chilled out as well. I, I think by all accounts, Tralee had a bigger homecoming than Killarney last night, just in terms of numbers. Like Denny Street did look fairly packed last night. We were in Killarney, and maybe it wasn't as busy as it would have been in the past. But I think somebody remarked that it was maybe the busiest Tralee was for our homecoming since 1997. So there is definitely that sort of um, kind of tension that's built up over eight years where people have been waiting for this. Yeah. Um, what what is standing out to people in terms of the bit that actually wins the game for them? Is it all Clifford? But is there other stuff that people are talking about? I, I think, like I mentioned, Graham O'Sullivan already. So so outside of that, I think probably it's Shane Ryan's coolness in the last two games in particular, which has been something that that maybe has stood out. Now I know he's had like great moments in the past. So again, it's it's nothing new. Like he was, if I recall correctly, he thought, thought he had some really good moments in the John game in 2019, and and maybe those are the moments that that forge this All-Ireland because he's been through that experience and I think the same can go for, for Jack Barry and Dermot O'Connor. I need to watch the game back and I need to find out how, how Killian McDade ended up scoring four points and yet we're still uh, here saying that Dermot O'Connor and Jack Barry were both brilliant. So um, maybe both of those things can be true but certainly from kickouts they were sensational. So yeah, the midfield, the goalkeeper, absolutely outstanding and um, obviously, like I mean, David Clifford is just, just, just wonderful. To be fair, I haven't seen too many people who've made the case against Shane Walsh as man of the match. And uh, that obviously includes Kerry people. I think everybody accepted that he was the man of the match on Sunday. Yeah, uh, but didn't get it. And like yeah. that decision's now been made and you can't really go back and, and revisit it. And it's like, well, there's definitely sometimes where it's okay. You could you can still do the interview with Clifford. You know, it's fine. You can get him up if you want to have an interview with him. But like not getting the official man of the match award in the All-Ireland final is actually something that will matter when Shane Walsh is 60 there'll be something missing from his mantelpiece that should have been there and these things you know oh, the individual awards that they do they do matter because it's like you know maybe maybe it drives them on to greater feats next year but I don't know if anything is ever going to be uh, greater than that uh, one one slight caveat to everything that's happening at the moment is Paddy Talley I didn't realise this was actually on a year sabbatical and so that year sabbatical is up he does not live in Kerry he does not live close to Kerry it's a huge burden to be driving 600 mile round trips for training sessions. Maybe he could just do one a week now that his, his system has been installed and everybody knows what it is and technology being what it is, they could live stream some of the other ones. I don't know. Is there a way that they can make this work or was that was that what he was, his job done? Off he goes, off into the sunset. I think it'd be a massive blow if they lost them because it definitely feels as if it's it's not job done. Like I, I don't think it was a complete performance from Kerry on Sunday. I think that there's still room for improvement in their performance levels. Like they did not bring their A game whatsoever on Sunday and they will be looking at that over the course of the winter as to how they can get better again. And the main reason that they seem to have got better this year is because of his coaching. So it would make sense for him to be brought on to improve again next year. So, yeah, I've heard that, that the, the sabbatical, um, I, I hadn't realised that until yesterday, actually, that he was on a sabbatical from work. And, and that obviously would have contributed easily to him uh, being able to travel to Kerry. So that would be a significant blow. 
like I, I think for everybody else in the management team, I'm sure that they're hungry to go again and and to to, to try and do it again next year. But if Paddy Talley just can't commit, that is that is a setback. And I'm not sure what the setup is in terms of of coaching and Kerry. And if there's somebody else who could be installed, or if there's another outsider that could potentially be installed into the into the Kerry camp. But th- that's a problem that that they probably need to to sort out fairly quickly if that's going to happen. Um, the influence that he's had. I presume everybody is delighted with that and there's like a, oh my God, this is incredible how great he has been and, and what an impact he's had generally. Yeah, like it, it does still feel like it, it's not real when they were in Killarney last night and all of their names are being announced and all the backroom team is being announced and Paddy Talley's name gets announced and a massive cheer in Killarney goes up with green and gold flags. It just doesn't feel uh, real. It doesn't make sense. And I think that there's probably... There was probably a, a stubborn clinging to, to kind of nonsense tradition for a while that was maybe broken away with when, when Tally was brought in this year. And it's it's paid off handsomely. And I think that's there's, there's two things about Jack O'Connor. First of all, surrounding himself with the, the, the right people this year has been uh, brilliant. And that that was a, a significant factor in them winning. And then also the ruthlessness with with uh, his in-game decisions was was the other reason why, why Kerry won this All-Ireland. So uh, it's a pretty simple thing. Make the right decisions, get your personnel right on the pitch and, and off the pitch. And they're the two things that, that he's done really well. But yeah, like the, the tally thing, I, I, it's just been so well documented all year. From the moment he was linked with the job, there was talk about him having a, a bit of an impact on Kerry. And it's it's worked. It's worked. He's got the All-Irelands. And other counties are going to be sniffing around thinking, how can we get a little bit of this as well? Uh, that will be definitely true and also I think it means that many other counties are going to be looking to the freshening up of their backroom team and also the fact that he is so famously a defensive coach you know this might be a a new era where everybody looks to have a defensive coach on their backroom team and let's wait and see what impact that has on the quality of football because not every team has a Shane Walsh or a Clifford that will allow the team to break through and you know, maybe we're about to enter a new era of, uh, era of loads of um, eight sixes again. Uh, what else? What other takeaways from the weekend on? Uh, like it's uh, hard to know. Like what? I mean, what other takeaways was there from the weekend? Which is very, which is really, really fun. You know, like actually kind of um, experiencing a win for for Kerry again. Like I, I I'm not sure. What, did it? Is it going down as one of the better All Irelands of recent years? Like I, I don't think it was on a level of a Dublin Mayo or a Dublin Kerry final. But I think maybe it was, it was better than last year's final. It was better than the 18 final. Like, like there was varying degrees of optimism or or negativity around the, the spectacle after the game. Like some people said it was one of the worst All-Irelands they've ever seen. Ah. And then some, <laughs> I, I was speaking to other people who said it was one of the best they've ever seen. I, think, I thought it was really good. I think when you've got Shane Walsh and Clifford doing what they did, like it's, a, it's an all-time great final because of that. It might not be better than some of the best games that we've ever seen. And I think the fact that while it was level, it didn't feel like Galway were going to be capable of pulling off the upset in the last five, seven minutes of the game. And you need you need that jeopardy. The great thing about the Mayo Finals was there was a sense of jeopardy that this all-time great team might be caught by this other team. Um, it didn't feel that way. Maybe it did for you as a as a Kerry fan, but it felt like their goose was cooked, especially when the free was, was, um, was given. That was like... And also there's just a few wides that they started to kick at that point. McDavid picked up a bit of an injury. Conroy had gone off. I, I suspect Conroy got injured m- much more badly than we thought when he um, had that block and kick in the first half. And that's why his influence on the, on the game wasn't as strong as it might have been. But um, that's for the, the dark winter months. The other news, obviously, in the last 24 hours, it was about the managerial merry-go-round. The, the Herald printed yesterday that Jason Sherlock may well be on his way to Monaghan. 
we now know that Colm O'Rourke is the Mead manager. This is pretty interesting. These are going to have a significant impact on the power rankings. Yes, we haven't done power rankings in a, in a long, long, long time, actually. I don't know where these uh, counties are. But the, the J.O. thing is... is Monaghan's in Ulster possible. and Mead is in Leinster. Yes. Uh, uh, the, the, the J.O. thing is, is possibly the, the more interesting of the two. And um, the like, I mean, they will have been very, very disappointed with how things went over the last couple of seasons. And like, I think that would today consider themselves in that pack just outside the top two or three counties where they feel they can push on. They can do a, a Galway or maybe even a Tyrone of the last two years and and try and do something special with with a new manager. I'd be really interested to see what he does as, as the main man in the camp because obviously his time with Jim Gavin was wildly successful. So you'd, you'd imagine he'd be a really good appointment. And then the Colm O'Rourke thing is, is is mad, really. I didn't see this coming at all, despite the fact that he is one of the most famous me GA men that, that exists. It, it does feel that it kind of came out of left field. And the key to him is how well his selectors are going to do. And I think that's probably what this year's All-Ireland probably shows us to a degree. And what, what Limerick have done as well, uh, especially in hurling over the last few years, the, who you surround yourself with as a manager is is possibly the most important thing you're going to do when you go into a camp. So that's going to be the big job for Colm O'Rourke. And... You know what? They're going to lead into lean into meadness over the next season. You suspect, and um, hopefully they can be bullish and trying to take down the Dubs. But they they looked like a massive gulf between them this year. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, definitely. And that that gulf has been there now for um, basically fifteen years. Uh, I, I do wonder if there's something in establishing a defensive platform and then trying to suck a team down to your level because none of the teams in Leinster have tried that with Dublin, like really. In any way, um, I don't know. But we're 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 trying to fix Leinster football here, so maybe we'll stop. <laughs> uh, and, and in terms of the future for Kerry, like the excitement, they are talking about going straight back at it. Does the split season actually help with that? In that, like, legitimately, the scenes that we're seeing are scenes of like an outpouring at the end of you know a Kerry-style famine. But I think it's also about the level of expectation that there's been around. The, the era of Clifford and O'Shea and so once they've started to deliver everybody can relax a little bit I do feel like they're on the verge of something really great and I know you're, you're making the point but um, that seems to be the atmosphere around the team that this is something special and in a way that's why it's more enjoyable Yeah, for, for sure and like just to clarify I, I just have concerns just about next year in particular um, as opposed to the, this team as a whole of course the, the odds are in their favour to win more, I'm just uh, just hold my horses on on saying 2023 is going to be another successful year. But maybe like the split season does work in their favour. There are just so many competitions in Kerry to get played off that I'm not sure if the split season will allow them to go on their holiday early, for example. And I know Jack O'Connor mentioned that in his interview with you yesterday that the league is such an important competition to Kerry, and they've really targeted that over the last three years. If you go on your holiday as All Ireland champions, chances are you're going to go into the league ill-prepared and that's the way it has been for the last few years unless you can get it done early unless you can get it done maybe before Christmas but I'm not sure that's possible in a county like Kerry with, with all the different competitions that they have so uh, it could, could be the start of next year before they go and that'll eat into the league time so like I mean maybe that's something that they get used to and maybe that's kind of something that, can t- that they can take away for future years but also how many more years of this split season are we going to have like our, is the All-Ireland going to be played maybe a little bit later next season and we've obviously got a different format going into next year too but yeah you'd like, you'd like to think they can make it work in their favour you think that more games will actually suit Kerry? yeah I, like I, I, as I say I, 
like I, I think when Anthony Miles yesterday was talking about the inside forwards that Kerry needs on earth, I think he was like bang on that they need that's the one position maybe they need to unearth maybe one more player or just hope that Killian Spillane and Tony Brosnan just get to the next level. But I do think in pretty much every other position there is really good depth that maybe people aren't aware of. And I think that'll, I think that more games will absolutely suit them. Now, the thing is with this new format next year is that the stakes aren't overly high. So that this whole piece about, you know, winning tough games, winning knockout games and, you know, getting down to, to man number 20 uh, in the white heat of battle in a knockout match, that's actually not going to matter until a, a very late stage in the season because only one team in these 14 groups are going to get knocked out. So there's going to be a steady nature to it all. It is going to feel like the National League, I suspect, for a period of that summer. And to be fair, Kerry have done very well in the National League. Like Kerry and Dublin have, have both done very well in the National League. And that's because of the size of their squad that they brought to the table early in the year. Yeah, there's um, there's a bit of a dog's dinner to the format next year, which people haven't quite woken up to just yet, which means that a lot of those games will be largely meaningless. Uh, they've managed to create an entire um, section of the year that's going to be nothing but dead rubbers, really. Uh, anyway, it's 7.54. OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Sean O'Dea says, I thought it was great All-Ireland. I had a fear Galway we were going to go very defensively, but fair play they didn't, and Kerry had to really fight to win that game. Adrian Kelly says, Lads, there's nothing predetermined in the GAA. The night of the 2014 All-Ireland, Eamon Fitzmaurice said, we're off the mark with a smirk, says Adrian Kelly. I'm sure he didn't have a smirk. I'm sure he was just happy with the fact that he'd won All-Ireland. And, um, you know, they were off the mark. And who knows? I mean, you know, they were involved in some very good games over the next couple of years that uh, there was just a matter of inches between them and further glory. Shane says, what about the Kerry midfield? Not as strong as they think. I mean, it, it's pretty strong. McDade might just be a superstar. Like that's my that might be what what's happened here is that we've witnessed the birth of a genuine midfield superstar in Galway, and actually they more than broke even with him in the first half, and then the changes happened, and in the second half, you know, it got a bit messy because he was probably running into pockets of space that they weren't accounting for. Yeah, possibly. I'd also say to that is that Kerry have Stefan Kunbar to come into the mix next season, and I suspect will play in that position. The bad news, the only bad news for Kerry this week is that Mark O'Connor has extended his contract down in Australia for another two years, but he'll be 28 at the end of that contract. I mean, a fine age days, to Mark. Co- fine age to come home. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, they, they could fix that if, if, if that becomes an issue. I mean, surely somebody in, in Kerry, and I'm talking about the food company, can be like, oh, what? think of your future career. What would you like to do? We've got loads of roles here. Loads and loads of roles all over the country. You don't even have to live in Kerry if you don't want to. Yeah, you can, you can live in Kildare. I exactly. mean, that's how lucky you can be, Mark. Well, they, they stopped off on the way home. I noticed that, that there was a, a big staging post, Kildare, just to rub it in our faces. Hey, lads, this yeah. is what it looks like. You can you I, don't have I, your photograph taken with it. Oh, look, it's your manager. Ah, no, it's not. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's 7-9-180-180 if you want to send us anything. Um, or if anybody else has any better gossip than Owen Sheehan managed to get over the last uh, 24 hours, then uh, we're all ears for it. Uh, what was the song they were singing on the Lewis? Um, it was uh, Billy Joel, wasn't it? Was it? We didn't start to fire. The, there's a Kerry version of it. They were asked to sing it last night and they played the song through the tannoy and uh, the mic was passed around and they just flat out refused. <laughs> they were like, no, we're not doing it. And it's like, there's literal video evidence of you singing it on Today. the earlier, Paul Murphy. Yeah. And they were just like, no, not doing it. I should have done it. It would have been an all-timer. Right, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. We're turning our attention now to the retirement of Brian Cody. And I'm delighted to say Cork Dermot O'Sullivan is with us to give us a perspective of what it was like to actually come up against his team. Uh, Dermot, good morning to you. How are you getting on? 
Morning, Jar. How are you doing? I'm very good. Um, you're in you're in good form today. Uh, you know the the Kerry victory seems to have um, heightened your spirits. She has it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I certainly I'm I'm enjoying. But it has it hasn't mine. No, I I just put it out there. It hasn't for me, but obviously it's done something for you. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm obviously covering it up very well, then, Dermot. I'm actually I'm delighted for Owen and I'm delighted for his his people. But yeah, you know. Um, I'm scared about a new dark age, to be honest. I'm legitimately scared about a new dark age where carry overlords and they just take it for granted. That's that's my concern here. That, that's that, that's fine. We'll leave them play that piece out for a while and see how it goes, you know. Come here. The, 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 we wanted to talk to you about Brian Cody, right? So you were in teams that beat Brian Cody's teams and you were in teams that were beaten by Brian Cody's teams. Was there something, was there something consistent when you came up against... What what you knew you were going to face when he was in charge? I, I suppose the, the the funny thing about this guy is right is we're still kind of waiting for this um, famous Wolf of Wall Street clip to appear with Brian Cody in it and his fist clinched and that steely determination in his face. I'm not leaving, you know. Um, I think it, it's still in the back for a mind summer because that dogged determination that we've seen in Brian through years. It's just, you know, it's still all a bit surreal. And it's probably the champ or the, the Dash League kicks off next year. We'll be still scratching. Is there a Tom Brady and this guy in the back of his head somewhere, you know? Um, so we'd be afraid to nearly put full closure on here in Cork just to make sure he is gone. Um, and that's with the greatest respect to the man because, you know, you asked me at the, the outset there, Joe, what did he bring? Like, oh. Brian's teams, you know, I mentioned in his own character characteristic there, that steely determination that, you know, they, they were they were constantly going to die with their boots on regardless of where the result was heading. Um, and from his first team to his last team in the All-Ireland final um, a week and a half, two weeks ago, you know, I think that that resonated throughout his his tenure of, of, of being manager of Kilkenny. Um, I, I, you guys were probably the first proper rival of his era in, in many respects. You won the All-Ireland Final in, in 99. And so I guess that gave you a great sense of confidence when you were going up against them that uh, that you could win those games, really. Because there were, there were definitely some counties who felt like, oh, this is Kilkenny and this is Cody and this is Shefflin. And not that they were beaten before they went out, but certainly... When the game was in the melting pot, they didn't have what it took. But for your team in particular, the introduction in '99 of a bunch of under 21s who went on to be like all-time greats, uh, it must have been a strange kind of for you guys to watch just how powerful the Cody era became and how long it lasted. Yeah, and not only that, it was extremely difficult to take. Um, you know, from a from a Cork perspective, to look at the way they dominated. You know, once once they defeated us in two thousand and six, once they dominated that next period um, until Tipperary came along and challenged them there for a while. But go go back to ninety nine. Um, you know, again we were young, we were fearless, we didn't know what was ahead of us. You know, in all Ireland final, you know, it was new, so it, it didn't trouble us. But so we could always go out, and it was a free shot. We you know we'd been successful under twenty one. Um, Brian was only just stepping into the role there anyway, so he hadn't really created the monster just yet. So we knew there was a, a real good opportunity for us. I suppose what, what really sticks out for me that year and, and, and something that kind of sticks out since, um, Cork played Kilkenny in a challenge game that year down in Kilkenny of an opening of a field. I can't exactly put my put my finger on where we played them, guys, but um, you know, we're really young. 
went down there. We got an incredible trimming. 15, 16, 17 points beaten out the gate by uh, by a very strong Kilkenny team and um, subsequently turned them over in the All-Ireland final. And only once to date have Cork and Kilkenny played a, cham- a challenge game mid-season <laughs> following that. Right. Um, and that was um, that was a fundraiser for Jamie Wall a number of years ago on Parky Ring. Brian Cody has refused since that date to play Cork in a challenge game at any stage throughout the season. So, you know, we, we'd said it all. We, we'd, we'd our own little moral victory there that, that Brian would not play Cork in a in a challenge game throughout the season. So it, it, it was just an interesting one and an interesting take from our perspective, you know. Um, so we had kind of put the we had kind of put the Indian sign over him. He wasn't going to take a chance again. We'd gone to Kilkenny with a young team. They'd beaten the, the life out of us. We turned up in all our final day, lashing out the heavens, and we, we end up turning him over by a couple of points, you know. Um, how how did you face a Brian a Brian Cody Kilkenny team? Um, it's with the greatest respect to all the guys we played against. It was like meeting the bully boy in school. If um, if you if you lay down to the bully boy in school, he keep hit keep keep chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at you. But you know, if you're willing to stand up, put your shoulders back, and and take what pain was coming your way and and work your way through it, um, you know. You always had a chance against Kilkenny. You had to face him. You had, you had to eyeball him. You had to look him straight in the eyes. Grant, you might be, you know, in your head, you might be stronger. You might be fitter. You might be quicker. You might be a better hurler. But us Cork guys, we 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 give everything. And I think, you know, that that's where the rivalry really started. You, you don't ever get the sense that, Dimmer, that Brian Cody ever forgot easily. Then, just with that um, anecdote you tell about the challenge matches there, that he had a great way of using a grudge or creating a grudge in his head almost for the betterment of his team? Oh, absolutely. I think Brian, you know, not that, he, not, not that his and his teams needed too many, too many motivated factors, but, you know, he always had something small, no doubt, in the back of his mind to, um, you know, to, to instill that extra bit of determination uh, in his team as, as they were getting ready for combat, you know. That period, maybe we, we kind of need to go back and, and revisit a bit more because the the, uh, the 99 All-Ireland Final, um, if people are unfamiliar, it's, it finishes 13-12 is, is the final score in the end. But your team is really young and that's the bedrock of the team that goes on to be the, the Cork team for the next kind of eight, nine, ten years even. The yeah. Kilkenny team there has Shefflin and McGarry, but all the rest of them are kind of coming towards the end of their career. So basically, he over the next well, actually, they win the All Ireland the next year. Not to we yeah. shouldn't we shouldn't ignore that after awfully stopped you in the semis. But Correct. that team changes dramatically then around oh two oh three oh four, and they go toe to toe with you guys who do back to backs, and then they stop your three in a row. So it's a real like if you were to take kind of from ninety seven ninety eight. When and ninety nine, when you guys come in to the their end to the, them doing the, the three in a row, that's a period of very intense rivalry between you two. Yeah, it was a very very intense period, but you know, it's while rivalry is great, sure, um, there was always the ultimate respect between between um, both squads, you know, because they knew what we were putting into it. Um, we were fully aware what they were putting into it, and I, I don't think it ever crossed the line where it. Uh, you know where I got really nasty or cynical throughout the games. It was just both sets of both sets of teams go go man for man. When when hurling was slightly different back then, you know, wasn't you know wasn't uh, as tactical uh, as it is now. So it allowed guys to go toe to toe under the one v one v one battles out in the field. And I think you know it 
that in itself um, allowed for for huge, huge contests and huge battles throughout that throughout that period uh, of the mid two thousands. There, it was all a bit spicier too because um, you guys were believing and uh, kind of helping to drive forward the momentum of the GPA. Kilkenny were a little bit more reluctant to get involved. Cody seemed to be somewhere, but never quite publicly in the ether when it came to that. Did that add a bit of spice? Because there's definitely stories from All-Stars uh, trips where there was, um, uh, I wouldn't say hatred, but certainly less collegiality than you might expect when everybody's getting pissed. Yeah, absolutely. And I I suppose that's that that's the problem with drinking. You know, they'll always bring out a... Uh, Bring out something they say uh, that you know the truth always comes out with a few points. Um, whether you know we, we can take that with a pinch of salt, but yeah, there, look, there's no doubt there was debated conversations along the way somewhere. But I think um, you know everyone always shook hands at the end of it and you know respected each other's decisions and opinions and, and kind of moved on. You know, was it enjoyable having them as rivals, or was it kind of sickening at the end where they come out on top? As a cartman, it was hard to take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we'd, we'd stopped them to three in a row. We were starting to build our own thing. Um, you know, 2006, we felt, um, you know, we felt we'd gone up there with a the right opportunity, but we had to guard against, you know, what we'd done to them previously. And unfortunately, um, you know, they came out, the grass was, the grass was long, in, long in Crow Park. They, they stopped the running game. They flooded bodies back. So it was probably... You know, or Kilkenny don't do tactics, but yet we, you know, we work like dogs. We get a few bodies back. However, they manage to get the grass long and keep the grass long. Crow Park all are in the final day, but you know that's a that's another that that's for that's for another day. But so yeah, look, it was it was disappointing, you know, but um, it was just the experience they gained throughout the, the number of seasons previous watching us and engaging with us, you know. And you would have obviously kind of um, seen up close as well in, in his latter years as a selector, the Brian Cody at the end of his managerial career. So yeah. what's your take on the, the arc of Cody and, and, and the, the changes that he allowed himself to make over the course of his career? Like Brian is an extremely interesting character and I think the Hurling fraternity can be very grateful for what Brian has not only brought to Kilkenny but brought to the game of Hurling and, you know, over nearly a quarter of a century, um, you know, to be so dominant and, you know, so, so well respected throughout the game. Um, you know, his legacy will go on for a long, long time. But I remember back in 2001, yeah, I suppose it's something that, that just, again, it just resonates with me and where Brian Cody was and in his mindset in relation to winning and determination. We were we were down in Buenos Aires in an all-star trip, Um yeah, I think it was two thousand and one, and obviously the the All Star game was 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 taking place. Was that it could have been the Sunday? So um, back then, boys being boys, we were out on the Saturday having a few beers. Um, crack was mighty, as you can imagine. Um, we in a foreign land. Um, great time going on. Kind of the match was the what match was the back for back for mine. So Sunday morning came one way or another. Anyway, Sunday afternoon came. Just 25, 26 degrees down Buenos Aires. As you can imagine, a couple of wire strats, half sunburnt, half hung over. Um, ball was thrown in anyway, 1919 versus 2000 team. Um, it was on Damien Hayes from Galway. And now, 
he wasn't the ideal fella, lads, I can assure you to be marking um, <laughs> with the sun splitting the stones and a, and a few beers uh, running down the forage, you know. It, it wasn't really the ideal place for me to be. Um, not a mind anyone else. So he was giving me a bit of a run around. And I'll never forget Brian Cody called me at half time. And I'm not sure why he said it to me, right? He said, can I ask you something? He said, he said, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving Hayes? He said, run around the field. He said, and dominate you like that. And I, I was kind of finding it hard to fucking, finding it hard to breathe, not a mind taking what he was saying to me. He said, take no. He said, fast forward the clock. He said, to the middle of the summer, he said, Corker playing Galway. He said, are you going to leave Damon Hayes running around to feel like that? He said, are you actually going to do something about it? You know? And I was thinking to myself, she's here I am. I'm half over. We're down in Argentina playing a, playing a, playing a game. Um, and that really resonated with me, with Brian and his mentality throughout, you know, any time I crossed them, either on the field or on the sideline, that, you know, this guy is a genuine, genuine hurling person. And I suppose as time went on, Brian evolved and he evolved and he created team after team after team. And again, he can walk away with his head held extremely high, not that he needs a pat in the back from a cartman to tell him he can walk away from his walk away from his job with his held head high. Even even up to a, up to last Sunday week again, he walked away and he left an incredibly imposing opposition behind him for any manager coming through. But Brian on the line, you always knew he would give, like, and obviously resonated with these players that he would give you everything. Off the field, he would give you everything and he would fight for fight for every last ball for his squad while, while the 70, 75 minutes of the game was going on. That's mad. He couldn't help himself from helping you even though at some yeah. stage you might be you might be chasing one of his forwards around, maybe a Richie Hogan or somebody going, oh, I shouldn't have told him about that Damien Hayes thing. Absolutely. I shouldn't have given him the inspiration, I, but he needed... I don't, think, I don't think it ever troubled him after it. So I said, gosh, it didn't really matter. It <laughs> I don't think it really troubled him. Um, but yeah, it was mad. Absolute mad. But you know what? It was. It, it just always stood in, my, it stood in the back of my head. You, you know, you that, know, that point about them not doing tactics was, it was, it was, it was nonsense, right? Because we we know that um, we know that there was a forward line there who would change around depending on who was going well and who wasn't going well, and, and like all sorts of other things were happening. They just didn't call it tactics at the time, but even though it absolutely was. Uh, so, what were they like to play against as a as a forward unit? Because so Shefflin plays in in um, that final in, in ninety nine. I think it's his second or third season at that stage. And I'd say it's only his first. Is it? It first. So I think it's on his, it was on his first. Sure, yeah, of on course, his first. Of course. Sure, right. Because otherwise he would have yeah. won. Otherwise he would have won the eleven. It's a fair, yeah. a fair point. Um, so you guys, you 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 witnessed that career evolve and develop. Um, I think you probably would have been marking him that day, would you? I was marking him for a while. Yeah, himself and himself and DJ. Yeah, they were they were kind of swapping again. Even go back to that early point. Um, you know, there there was a little bit of movement. Um, you know, if. Uh, if you were being kind of starved the ball in your own position, they kind of had that license to rotate between the marquee players. Um, John Power was another one of them, so they they had the they had the the authority to to make them little switches that appeared throughout games and definitely through the two thousands as it, as it further developed. Um, you know, Shefflin, Larkin, Brennan, all these guys had had the autonomy and the authority to to find put themselves in positions where they were going to be dangerous if they were starved of ball. Yeah, and that that I think is is really interesting for a manager who obviously is supposed to be this I rule with an iron fist, um, completely ruthless, but actually he gives the players the freedom to make decisions to play. Essentially, now it's heads up hurling, but then it was like play what you see, if you need to make the changes, you make the changes. Don't be waiting for us to tell you exactly what to do. 
Yeah, and what that show, it showed Brian always had faith and trust in his players and his big players to make the right decisions, you know. Um, and ha- to have that support from a manager gives a, gives a player fierce confidence. Yeah, look, I, I do think that that rivalry, when it comes to be uh, excavated again, is going to go down as one of the great rivalries because your team in, in 99 and the team that finishes the final in, in 06 isn't massively different, but there's a complete turnaround in the Kilkenny team uh, between those two periods. So I, that, again, is the other sign of a great manager. It's like you come in, you, you see, OK, I can win all Ireland with this group, but actually I need to get these other younger players through and that's the evolution of it. And I suppose that's the bit where the comparison to Ferguson is that it's most appropriate. Oh, absolutely. To, um, you know, to be able to identify further ahead. Okay, I'm going to need a cornerback in 12 months' time. I'm going to need two forwards in two years' time. But it was it, it was how he strategically did it over that period of time. He'd bring a guy in for a championship game for five minutes, bring a guy in for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and build him up over a prolonged period of time that when his when he'd earned his right then to start in his Kilkenny team, He'd he'd his um you know he'd his apprenticeship served he'd his time done and now here you go this is now is your opportunity um if you want to take it take it if not I will have some other guy to come into the breach uh, and take it on from you. Dermot, great stuff this morning. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Have a good day. Thanks a million, it's Dermot. Uh, Rock O'Sullivan there giving us his thoughts on the the Cody year and what it was actually like to come up against. Uh, various different iterations of it. Uh, Fourteen minutes past eight this morning. You can see the people in Cork are delighted for you too, Owen. Yeah, that's that. That's the main one. That's the the main one. The, the hurling fraternity in in Cork absolutely delighted for for carry footballers. That's that. That's one we were hoping for. Hurling and football, um, of course. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Fair, very fair point. Yeah. Um. I. I'd like. I mean. That. That'll. That'll probably change. I think. I think what we got a sense of last week was that most people were were probably up for Galway and, and maybe if Kerry are on top of the tree next year, most people would be uh would be rooting against them and that that'll be the way it goes. So. Uh, happy days, I guess, is the only thing you can say to that. You're ready for it, right. A reminder that Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Each week, we're giving one lucky viewer a €100 euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, just check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Brayburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Brayburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste. Uh, to give you the very best on-the-go coffee experience on the road, it's available at Apple Green today. After the ad breaks, we're going to be joined in studio by the Chief Operating Officer of Bohemians, Daniel Lambert, talking about the issue of some League of Ireland players being sold. First, here is Enda McGinley on last night's Off the Ball, comparing David Clifford with another great in Peter Canavan. We're all going to have 10 odd years of, and hopefully he stays injury free, but look, he's got all the talents. What I, I seen a match, I think it was actually Kerry might have been, it was some form of a knockout game up in Clonus against Monaghan. And it ended up a draw and Clifford had been massive to, to drag Kerry to get the draw at the end. The draw was an amazing result on the day for Kerry because they, they looked well out and beaten. And it was, the players were clearing off the pitch and I was just happened to be watching Clifford and he was an angry, angry man coming off. He was disgusted. And this this was now, this was maybe two, three, this must have been three years ago. So he was only a cub. And yet he had that anger, he had that leadership, he had that expectation of the Kerry team. Whenever I seen that, because we all were aware of his talent and everyone else from, from the minor days, whenever I seen that, I thought, okay, that he has that because you mentioned Canavan there. That's what struck anybody playing in alongside or in the dressing rooms with Canavan. The thing that's always, you, you got it full in the face, was that massive competitive desire 
and you've seen it yesterday in, in the woods, that wee bit of a contrast with Walsh too. Clifford was pumped up every ball. He was jumping. There's a wee bit of a showmanship. He, he's turning to the crowd. But there is anger in everything he does. He is so determined and so competitive. And I think with that, with his, <laughs> Colin mentioned, his physical size, then his speed, which surprised everybody a few games ago when he just blitzed and people sort of forgot because he plays the game in such a beautiful, sort of relaxed manner, suddenly realised, right, he's got light and fast pace. And then, of course, his feet, and we've seen his touch in around the goal for such a big man. He's got this amazing sort of close touch. So when, when we talk about somebody that has it all, all the skills and athleticism, he has it. But that ingredient, that absolute sort of competitiveness and aggression and that wee bit of dirt that he has in his game, he's a boy that's willing to sort of throw it in. You see these wee cheeky slaps that he sort of gets away with and he's such a wonderful player. Nobody wants to be annoyed with him at all, mm. uh, but he does it. Uh, but all of that, that makes him the player that potentially, and again, you never know what life brings uh, but potentially and hopefully we, we, we get to see this man because he, he's he's only touching the start of his prime years. OTB AM With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, 19 minutes past eight this morning here on OTB AM. I'm delighted to say Daniel Lambert, who is the COO of Bohemians, is with us in studio. Um, we wanted to get you in because you were tweeting last week about the the current situation where a lot of 18-year-olds are joining League One clubs and you had an idea about maybe how the league might counteract the issue of our best young players being sold for what seems like pennies on the dollar as opposed to fair value. Um, And I just thought it would be interesting to have that conversation and start to learn a little bit about it. So can you talk to us maybe about what inspired you to to put this out there? Um, what What was the bit where you think, okay, we need to have a conversation about this? Yeah, I think, look, we've seen since Brexit, I suppose, that the, the important point before this is probably that, you know, pre-Brexit, the best young players uh, were leaving Ireland before they had any profile, I suppose. So you had junior clubs and Kevin's, Joey's, Belvedere and others producing a lot of good young players and they'd leave Ireland at 15, 16, 17 before they'd broken into League of Ireland teams at all. And they'd go in big numbers and we'd see them later on. So you'd either see them in two ways, players who'd returned home. Um, and there's a lot of them who come and play in the league or players who, who made it over there and then you see them at a later age. But now we're seeing that, you know, with Brexit, that players are breaking into the League of Ireland teams, making a big impact, they're, beco- you know, they're, on, our, they're on our radars and then we're losing them quite quickly. And I suppose there's no, like, you know, the Irish League isn't going to compete with the, with the UK in terms of quality of football or the, the wages that it can offer, that's for sure. And we can get a lot better and we should. And it's not unusual that a young player will want to leave, but I think that, um, you know, there are at times release clauses and it's not exclusively that, like, you know, we should say at Bohemians we had two players with release clauses who, who've left recently, but it, it seems to be a problem for every club and uh, not just for one. It's not wholesale, but we've seen a lot of players move with clauses recently and I think that the league clubs can cooperate and act in a way that removes that as an option and it will still mean players will leave but there'll be, I suppose, a fairer fee paid and we need that to happen as, as we invest in academy systems and Ultimately, look, the international the international teams' fortunes are now heavily tied to the League of Ireland because I'd say they're they're one and the same. Uh, League of Ireland clubs will develop all our international players as we move forward, and we have to ensure that we're in, in a best position to do that. Oh, so all the more reason for the clubs to get good funding from the best players who get transferred, as opposed to going away cheap. Can you just explain how the release clause actually works? Um, so n- not a specific example of any of your players because we're not looking for you to breach confidentiality or whatever. But in principle. Why are there release clauses? Why do the clubs agree or feel like they need to agree to a release clause? Who, who's putting the release clause in and, and what kind of 
um, percentage or money do you think um, how, just how does it work because it's something that people yeah, don't know about it'll work where you, you have a young player let's say at any League of Ireland club maybe age 17, 18 who's beginning to break into a first team um, obviously the players may be shown you know, a lot of potential and an agent will look to insert a release clause that will specify a price that the player can leave the club um, and I suppose there's been an investment in the past you know, we have full-time head of academies now, uh, lots of clubs, we've won at our own club, we're developing better facilities, so there's a big investment gone into a large group of players over a long period of time to develop players in all parts of the game, and might end up as coaches, League of Ireland players, or play internationally, but they look to insert these clauses at that point, and I suppose the the rationale is that if, if you don't agree to it, they may move to another League of Ireland club. They're not at the point where the player is in demand in the UK or anything like that, so they're showing potential and they may or may not move, but it puts pressure, I suppose, on one club where they need to keep the player, the player's becoming an important part of the squad or is becoming an important part, that the risk is that they go to another club who'll agree to a release. Um, the the best young Barcelona players have just signed, or sorry, the best young, the three Brazilians have just signed uh, Real Madrid new contracts and the release clause is 500 million and a billion and a billion. And you're like, okay, this is all ridiculous. Uh, I suspect the release clauses, the numbers are weighted in favour of the agent being able to phone a club in England and say, I can get you this player, he's clearly worth a load, more than this, but the release clause is, is it 10, 15, 20, 25,000? Are they the figures we're, we're talking about? No, for, for us, they would be much higher than that, to be right. fair. But I think that we've seen, like, you know, our players are in demand. If you think of someone like, like Evan Ferguson, probably the best example from Bowes in the last couple of years, you know, made his Premier League debut last year, came on against Burnley for Brighton, 17 years old. We look at players who've gone over, Georgie Kelly were playing the Championship this year. So, like, our players are in demand because they're good players. You know, we've really good players coming from the country and we're developing better players all the time, I think. Um, so they, they, they wouldn't be that low but I still think they aren't obviously at market value and the idea here isn't to How, how much below market value are they just to give people an, an idea of what we're it, You know it might be 50% below might right. be 100% below so you might be getting maybe half what, what you think you should get um, and I just think that it, it's so important that That could pay for four staff or that could pay for you know five more players to come in to help the first team which will make more people want to come and see the team which kind of builds the momentum right so like it's it's not catastrophic but it's a huge amount of money that we're talking about in terms of overall revenue yeah and it shouldn't like the, the idea here isn't like if a young player wants to progress like no league of Ireland club blocks the progression of a player um, and everybody wants to see an individual reach their potential so I think ultimately I think you know if we command better fees the player um, the agent himself the clubs there aren't really any losers to it it's just to ensure that we get to a point where we're getting market value for the players Okay so what you had asked for in, in your um, tweets last week was that the, the League of Ireland clubs would come together and act uh, in concert um, so a huge amount of, League of, of young players are now moving from the League of Ireland to League One in particular it's an obvious result of Brexit previously scores went annually at younger ages now they've entered League of Ireland teams and can roll that on there and are visible and delivering impressive performances the balance has shifted from large numbers of unknown talent to a smaller number of older proven talents clubs are getting better add-ons but we need to collectively improve the upfront fees being achieved and so um, the impediment to fees are agent get-out clauses these can be counteracted by clubs having a collective agreement to set a certain level where no club breaks it and delivers higher fees for all that's the that's the bit here that's most contentious or most ambitious depending on like can the clubs agree that they're going to work together for everybody's benefit do you think they can? I think they can yeah I think look you know we need to I suppose like as we progress here we're talking about the FAI have obviously moved the underage academy system into League of Ireland clubs there's been brilliant developments we've seen and there will be a lot more developments in terms of infrastructure by all clubs in the next couple of years and I think it's essential that we as a league you know, cooperate off the pitch to, to make the pie bigger for everybody really to improve our league um, you know it, it is the case it, does football reach its potential in this country it really doesn't you know I grew up playing GAA the GAA I think does reach its potential 
and you go and you see an All Ireland final, you see an intercounty game in, in really good facilities. But League of Ireland, we have the participation numbers. There needs to be multiple approaches. It includes government investments in stadia. We visited the Union Berlin two weeks ago and they showed us their new academy, which has been built 50% funded by the German government. You know, and this makes sense on lots of levels because it enables a better team, national team, it allows more players to progress and reach their potential, it allows fans, coaches, players, staff to have a better experience of football in Ireland. And this is just one part of that. But I really do think that, you know, where League of Ireland clubs have been in the past and where they'll be in the next 10 years are, are really poles apart because we are going to develop the best young players. So what needs to happen for the clubs to all come together? Is it um, is there a simple mechanism for this where everybody says we're going to agree to this and it's it's not like written in stone? Or does it? do you feel it needs to be like a, a kind of... League of Ireland charter where everybody signs up and says we're going to try and increase everybody's value the value of everybody's playing stock and the way we're going to do that is multifaceted we're going to lobby government for for funding for uh, resources not just for stadiums but also for staff and investment at that level but equally we're going to make sure that we charge the right price for our players will everybody sign up for that? Yeah, I don't think it needs to be a charter. I think it, you know, a clever, a clever strategy and a thought-out strategy is needed for things like government investment, which is obviously part of the FAI strategy. But I think when it comes to something like an agreement like this, I think it can be done. There's a forum called the PCA, the Premier Clubs Alliance, where we meet kind of every two weeks. Um, and I, th- I do, it does require a level of trust, obviously, because if, if it's a case that Club A is talking to an agent and agrees that you know they aren't going to agree to a release, that they need to be confident that Club B and C will do likewise. So it does require maybe a degree of trust that hasn't been demonstrated in the past but I don't think that's to say it can't be in the future Okay um, What was the feedback like from, from people who saw your idea out there are people generally broadly in favour of it? Yeah well obviously the people who contacted me were because that, that's naturally what happens I suppose you know several clubs contacted to say that they were interested in this that they would like to discuss it so I think it'll definitely be discussed hopefully um, but like I said this is just one part it, it just it's something that we've seen you know we saw several examples from several clubs in the past 12 months and to me it's quite an easy fix and again, it's not to say that this is in any way detrimental to a player's development. It isn't. Players will develop and will move. Well, the other thing is that the quality of player is is has been clearly demonstrated over the last five, ten years in particular, where the older players who go over are making first team debuts much quicker than the ones who went over. Obviously, that you know, it's, it's very natural that they'd be further along, but that the, it's not a barrier anymore to playing in the League of Ireland to go to play in League One or the Championship. No, it's, it's not at all. And actually, it's much better for player welfare. Like we've heard stories and we've all seen it at clubs. Anyone who's worked at a club, you get young players who've come back, who've maybe spent four or five, six years in the UK. Um, you know, they've forgotten education in terms of leaving cert. And it can be difficult if you don't make it in the game to come home where you've missed a key part of your life's development. Now they have the opportunity to, you know, to finish their education, to stay in Ireland um, and then to move at 18 with much better opportunities and to have an actual affinity to a League of Ireland club. So if it doesn't work out to come back and maybe slot back into a system and to a culture and an environment that you're familiar with in the past somebody who left a junior club they mostly had no involvement or exposure to a League of Ireland club but the fundamental point here I suppose is that if we are to develop players top players we have to ensure that we have systems and processes and infrastructure and facilities to enable that and that will only come about through more revenue coming into the league and there's several ways that can happen you know I think things like a broadcast deal or large commercial agreements you know they're on the wish list but ultimately they'll probably come after stadia development whereas this is something that can be fixed quite rapidly without huge infrastructure you know improvements yeah. it can happen through an agreement through a conversation yeah Owen uh, Daniel when it, when it comes to the interest in players in the League of Ireland right now it seems from the outside looking in that there is just kind of more of a, a global or a continental feel to clubs that are interested in League of Ireland players people going beyond just Ireland and the UK is, is that the reality in, inside in the league from your own perspective 
Yeah, well, from players going out, we've, like the Brexit rules mean that a player is you can move at sixteen to the continent while well, you have to wait till eighteen. So that's why you've seen, I suppose, a number of players move recently to the continent. And you know, when you speak to heads of academy at the moment, some do say that there are certain really high potential players who would benefit from a move to an environment that's perhaps you know a, a better environment, a more advanced environment, as we seek to, to to reach the same stage in terms of players in. Obviously, we brought a player in yesterday from Germany. I do think the league, historically, there's been kind of two-way movement. It's players coming from the UK and vice versa. And I think that we do need to look at other markets. Um, it's, it's obviously been down to cultural and language kind of reasons in the past, but I don't think that that's a reason to not look at, at other markets and we should look both ways. When you bring a player in from Germany, how much work and scouting goes into that move? Um, you, obviously, look, you've got analysts who you, there's things, a lot of systems now, Huddle and Scout and other programs that you know clubs are using globally, and you can do quite a lot of work without traveling. Um, in terms of bringing somebody in, then it's really about you know them being comfortable moving into a new environment. The player we brought in yesterday was really interested in Ireland. He, he speaks good English. He he wanted to come here, and I think that that's important because it is a shift. And we we've had we have had players in the past, I suppose, who've moved to places you know where they do find it's culturally a difficult fit, uh, especially around language. So. Could the FAI have a role in brokering this agreement between the clubs? I don't think so. I don't, I don't actually think it's an FAI okay. issue, to be honest. I think the, you know, the FAI, they administer the league, they promote the league, but something like this really, I think, is outside of their remit. Okay. Um, and probably better if the if the uh, league clubs start cooperating and, and driving initiatives like this without waiting for the FAI to take the lead on it. Yeah, definitely. And the FAI have taken the lead on a lot of things. Like the move to academy football has been excellent. You know, there's, there's been a lot of new staff come in. There's a li- proper league office at the moment. And the FAI strategy, you know, was badly needed. And there's some good, really good things in there. But I do think that fundamentally, you know, we mentioned it earlier, but when we look at, like, you look at Tallis Stadium as an example and the crowds that Shamrock Rovers have gotten recently, like that's a, you know, a municipal stadium. It makes a lot of sense. It's what's to be delivered for Daily Mount and, and there's hopefully be more news on Daily Mount shortly. But we look at Stadia around the country. It's a simple model. These aren't usually expensive Stadia. We're talking about, you know, Derry cities, I think, had public investment as well. So if you take that you've had, you know, Tala and Derry as two, you know, you can't have eight more stadia in the Premier League. We're not talking about hundreds of millions of euros here. Um, I think with, you know, perhaps 10 million for each, you could do quite a big improvement. Some of them are in better condition than others. Daily Mount's quite poor. But we have seen, you know, Richmond Park. You've seen it in Talca Park. You've seen it in Daily Mount. You've seen crowds grow. Um, and they're growing with facilities that are below par. Um, and that aren't what people should experience for the most part, with some exceptions. You talked about the academy system um, really working. We're starting to see the fruits in the international team. I think um, you know the quality of football that we're seeing from our young players and the fact that uh, some of the best, best clubs around Europe are now picking our 16-year-olds would all suggest that everything is going in the right direction. And yet there does still seem to be this kind of faction uh, within the schoolboy clubs who are looking at the League of Ireland clubs going you know, what's going on here why why have we been left behind does that manifest itself at all on a day to day basis or is that exclusively in the committee rooms of the FAI where that kind of stuff actually has an impact yeah I don't think it manifests itself usually and you'd have to be sympathetic and you'd have to understand I suppose the position of you know a junior club who perhaps has, have developed players for you know for 50, 60, 70 years and would have had I suppose underage coaches there that were probably the most qualified coaches in the country. That, that's got a, it was a difficult move. I do think having a, a football pyramid, you know, from top to bottom, makes an awful lot of sense for the game. And I suppose there, you know, in any change, some people end up in a better position and some people end up in a worse position. But I do think that you have players develop through League of Ireland clubs. We had a system prior to that where you sort of had two silos. You had a pyramid that was the the men's senior game which has now thankfully become men's and women's and then you had uh, junior clubs and there wasn't any crossover really unless players were returning back so I can understand frustrations there but I really do think that that move was 
you know, a really good move. And has it worked itself out? It, it, like, because it, it feels, it feels even just reading um, Don McDonald's piece yesterday about the the FAI um, AGM this year that there's still simmering discontent, and it hasn't quite gone away with the DDSL going back to winter football. It's like it's just little pockets who are kind of interested in. Um, the status quo or trying to re-establish the status quo when actually it seems like the status quo didn't work for us at all. Yeah, and I think look, when you make a big change, there'll always be some people, I suppose, who, who are unhappy and will try to return to the to the previous position. I don't think that will happen in this case. And I do think things like alignment of seasons are really important for player development and to enable, you know, com- uh, align transfer windows to enable, you know, just alignment across the board in terms of players moving from one level to another or from, you know, and that can be either way. Um, so I think you'll probably see a period of time where there still is some of that but hopefully it will then kind of fizzle out it doesn't really impact us in terms of a League of Ireland club but you, you do you know you'll hear other people's opinions and you'll read about them and you'll maybe hear them from other meetings and you know I can see the position that someone would be in there but I do firmly believe and I think it goes without saying that like the, that system of a of a pathway from, from a young age up makes a lot of sense well it's the only way forward really yeah, yeah, yeah. it is and so overall it sounds like you're quite um, confident about the future of the league um, enthusiastic about the future of the league is that fair because there's definitely been periods of the time in the past where uh, it was it was less coherent it was less um, it was more fractured and it looked like cooperation of the type you were talking about would have been almost impossible so it feels like maybe we're entering a new era yeah, I think, I think we definitely are. Look, I think, you know, we've mentioned the FAI, the changes that have happened there. It's obviously going to be a long road for the association, given the level of debt that they have. But there's been really good people have come in. You know, they have clear plans and they're working to, you know, a plan that makes sense to clubs for the most part. Um, you know, you can always have improvements in terms of promotion of the league. But I do think that just if you simply look at clubs and look at the number of staff they have at Bohemians, you know, we had one member of staff who was Lynn is with Bohemians 40 years this year. And that would have been our, you know, non-playing side of the club. You know, in the office now, we've kind of, four, five, six staff, you know, between full and part-time. And likewise, many other clubs, you've seen people come in full-time, COOs, CEOs, you know, commercial people at all clubs. And I think that that, you know, has obviously led to a professionalisation amongst clubs and, you know, more cooperation off the pitch. So I do think we're going in the right direction. But the, the big elephant in the room is stadium. It's the one that everyone points to, but it really needs to happen because without that, you can get to a certain level. Like, we're sold out every game, which which sounds great, but it's awful because a lot of young kids can't come to Dalymount, new families have moved to Fibsborough, people who've, who want to come and can't, um, and that's a bad thing. Uh, but it's happening at a lot of grounds, it's not just Dalymount that's sold out, so we do need to we do need to approve, improve upon that quite quickly, and from that flows so many other things, not just revenue. Yeah, but, it, uh, but the revenue allows everything else to happen, so it's kind of, a, it is chicken and egg. So what what's the big block on that? Is it that the government haven't quite fully understood the opportunity that's there with football or why do you think we haven't had the investment that we should have had in those stadiums? Uh, my own personal opinion is that football is fragmented in the country. You know, I think if you're you know, a politician and you look at the GAA and you have the parochial model, you probably have quite a, I suppose, a formulated ask from a local TD, uh, you know, and all, all politics starting locally, maybe even at councillor level, whereas in football you tend to have in any area a multitude of clubs. Um, so you take an area, like I grew up in Finglas and I think there was 40 teams, my dad ran one of them you know, and he had a one-team club, and they play in a park, and they operate over a porta cabin, and they're yeah. lobbying the local guy for you know another porta cabin. And I think that unfortunately in football, maybe over time, that that's, that fragmentation has led to has led to kind of a mixed messaging for for politicians, and that needs to be more formulated, which is what the FAI are doing at the moment. And I do think that when you talk about a game with so many participants, to have a league in our country where you know you've great clubs with great histories, but playing in the t- in the stadium they are, it, it really is perform. 
Um, and part of that blame lies with the FAI, part of it lies with the clubs themselves. But I do think now, as we all look to move forward, that you know, I think that there, some of that burden should shift to government. Um, and the municipal model delivers a lot. You know, it doesn't. It's not just a football stadium. You know, you can have integrated community facilities, and it can be used for other events. So. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we've talked about this before. Uh, Vinnie Parth has talked about, you know, in Tala, there's like uh, four different facilities all getting maybe 50 grand or 100 grand in grants. But actually, if that was one facility, it would be absolutely amazing and all four clubs could be run out of it. They would just have to share it. And that's the bit of cooperation that maybe is easier in a GA club because you go, well, that's your territory and that's your territory and that's it. And nobody else is allowed to set up there. Whereas actually anybody can set up a football club, really, if they want and, yeah. and uh, make that application. So... That that's a, a long hard road, but in terms of daily mount, how transformative would it be if you just had that facility working, functioning properly as a community amenity in Fibsborough, but also a great place to go and watch football? Oh, you couldn't uh, you couldn't overemphasize the change that would make to the club in terms of like you know we've got about sixty playing teams now, boys and girls. So many of those kids can't can't come to games. They said you know it, it, even in a stadium where where you don't have enough capacity, you've got a mix of groups that maybe shouldn't mix. You've got your singing section beside your family section beside older people, and um, it would be massive. And uh, you know it really is. I think we need to move away too from this model. We sometimes hear of like a six thousand all seater or an eight thousand all seater. Like other leagues are moving back to terracing. You know, you see it in the Premier League, you see it in the SPL. We went to Union Berlin two weeks ago and there was 18,000 people at the game and there was 15,000 standing. You know, and we need to get away from this idea that you need to bring in teams of architects and design something that looks amazing that's an all seater because very often as a football fan, you want to be close to the pitch and you want to stand where a large percentage of people do. So I don't think there needs to be huge cost to it. It just needs to be designed in a way that, you know, fans want to enjoy the game. Yeah. And then your facilities are multi-use, as you said, which is crucial. And you see it in other countries as well. Yeah. Owen? Daniel, do you know how many, uh, what percentage of daily amount you'd actually be able to, or how many more tickets you'd be able to sell, how, how, what the estimate would be on revenue if there was a facility that was that was up to scratch and, and something that... That, that you feel you could get more people into? Yeah, like we'd anticipate that our crowd would grow by about 70%. So if you took, say, 2,000 2, people per game, and this is just an average, obviously, if you look at something, I suppose, like the Bose Rovers game, and you look at the number that arrives to Tallet, and then what you can sell in daily amount, you can probably mar- marry them too, but it is the derby. So if you say you take 2,000 people and you go at an average, of say, a 12 euro a ticket, you're talking about 45,000 a game, and then you multiply that out by, you know, by your 20 home games, you're nearly a million a year. Um, but that's just the ticket price. Obviously, when people arrive to a stadium, they buy food and drinks and jerseys and programs, and they maybe experience the game, you know, as a young child for the first time, and they return. So, the actual and yeah, and you bring into that commercial revenue, you know, in terms of the visibility for commercial partners, and um, you know, really it becomes it, it, just it's it's massive, you know. And like I said, we're seeing it. It's not just Bows. We have seen you know many many uh, clubs this year sell out games, and while that's to be celebrated, it's an opportunity lost, really. The other thing is the atmosphere creates this momentum behind the league that then becomes unstoppable. If the atmosphere is great at every game, then people want to go and ticket prices can go up, revenue can go up. Of course, people, people yeah. don't mind that because they, it becomes an experience. And I, I'm not advocating for higher ticket prices, but you know what I mean. There's like an opportunity there. I think it really brings in the broadcast deal as well because you know you saw I suppose last year when we played in Europe, we played three games in the Aviva. You know, brilliant games, brilliant occasion, especially coming out of COVID. But visually, when you look at those games, you know, the, the stadium sets the stage, I suppose. So while the players are the same and the game, you know, maybe of the same quality, it appears in a very different light. And I think that, that that's a really fundamental piece as well, that, you know, with better facilities, I think TV replays your promotion of the league visually. And, if, you know, if you're behind visually in, in you know, the social media age, yeah. it just doesn't marry. So what's your ambition for a, a, a broadcast deal? What, what, what's the best case scenario? What would you like? Well, it, it needs to bring in revenue. Like, you know, at the moment, I think... Th- 
games in the league over the past, you know, as long as I've been involved, really what the benefit to a club is that it benefits your commercial partners. It may actually hit your ticket sales a bit. So there's no actual financial element really. You know, LOITV has come in, you know, obviously during COVID and was great for people. But I don't think that that's a long term solution. It, you know, a paper game streaming service, you know, for me isn't isn't the answer. Um, but it's totally understandable too from a broadcast perspective. The figures aren't there. You know, the figures have been released by RTE and for the most part they don't justify, you know, a large amount of games um, and they de- certainly don't justify payment. Yeah, the only thing about that is that like if you put a game on now and then no other game for now five, six weeks and then no other game for five, six weeks and then two together, how do you build up, how does anybody build up a sense, okay, this is an appointment to watch? Mm-hmm. Like TV viewing is about habits. You, you can't put one-off games on and go, well, this didn't work. So not, it, that that always seemed a little bit like a handy excuse to me. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And look, look, there's nobody who'd love a game on each week more than me. But I do think, like I said, that it's probably a process, and things like a, a proper broadcast deal probably is at the end of our process where we have, you know, ten stadiums that can hold, you know, between five and eight thousand each that visually, you know, look good, and with more people going in more communities, which will naturally happen with attendances, then there's a greater interest anyway. So the TV numbers would rise. The actual spectacle of the game, you know, would be on a par with other games that you'd expect to see. And yeah. Other sports, um, but we're just we're at that kind of point where the the, the stadium issue is a handicap for all clubs, um, bar one or two. And you know, we have models there. As I said, we see, we've seen in Tala what a municipal stadium can do in terms of driving up attendances and creating a stadium that, you know, while it's uh, a little bit outside the city, you know, looks amazing, has a big capacity. And, um, and it's a place that people want to go 100% well Daniel best of luck with all of it and thanks William because it is really interesting that um, notion that maybe uh, cooperation could help to raise the, the revenue f- that we're getting for players because we all want that to happen and the higher value that the players have sometimes actually makes it easier for them when they get there that the pathway to the first team is like oh we've got to put you in here we've got to give you a chance because we paid some money for you so thanks William for joining us today yeah no problem it's uh, 8.43 this morning OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day up next Sports News with Colin Milani. before that here's the lads in the news round last night talking about how it could have been a different story for Kerry had Conor Callaghan been fit for Dublin in the semi-final yeah, well the good managers don't wait around sure they don't no. and he really has delivered for Kerry on so many occasions Jack O'Connor and it's often in the aftermath of a really humbling defeat to Tyrone in 2004 off the back of that All-Ireland semi-final in 2003 and 2009 when they, after they were beaten by Tyrone in the 08 final and now again after their semi-final loss last year Jack O'Connor comes in and they win in All-Ireland in the following season and they were most people's favourites from the very beginning of the year uh, they have gone through the season unbeaten apart from that league game against Tyrone which was a dead rubber from their point of view defensively he's transformed them I think they conceded two goals in play through the McGrath Cup the Munster Championship the league and the All-Ireland Championship which is extraordinary given it was a Kerry team that was being suckered by really bad goals conceding at big moments in games over the last couple of years so that they continue to improve defensively we heard from Graham O'Sullivan there I mean if it wasn't for the likes of McDade and the other two scores in chief he was up there for the man of the match award a phenomenal display from cornerback capped by a brilliant score himself and he assisted a couple of points as well so Jack O'Connor seems to have improved them all around overall though I still look at Clifford and I think if you don't have that guy, you haven't. You don't win the All Ireland. And if Conor Callan plays against you in the semi final, you don't win the All Ireland either. So they're worthy champions, and they will improve because they've got this eight-year monkey off their backs, and they've now come through at the death in two huge games that will bring them on massively. But they're not runaway favourites for any in anyone's eyes, I would imagine, for next year's championship either, which is great. And I just was tweeting earlier for the fourth decade running, the first three All Irelands of the new decade have been won by three different counties. 
And I, it, I mean, that's refreshing off the back of Dublin's dominance for so long that we have Dublin, we have Tyrone, we have Kerry winning the first three All-Irelands of this decade. And perhaps go if they can kick on on the back of what they've achieved this year, they'll be best placed to maybe make it four different teams in the first four years of the decade, which would be great. Dave McIntyre there uh, making the case that maybe Con would have changed things in the semi. Uh, we'll see. We'll see next year, hopefully. Patrick McHugh says, Drogheda United have lost three players last season to Palace, Blackburn and Bolton. They're playing first team now and we've got absolute peanuts. Killian Phillips with Palace has a sell-on fee. And Peter M says, 6,400 people all sitting at Cork City versus Galway in the first division two weeks ago. New record attendance for the first division. Um, Carl, you're a League of Ireland fan. I am. Well, a relatively recent convert now, I have to admit. But yeah, I take an interest. Well, that, like the the league needs recent converts. Uh, you yeah. know, if ever there was a bandwagon required, the League of Ireland needs one because yeah. the, the more people who go to games and the more people who um, show up and have an opinion and help. Oh yeah, I mean, I've 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 been delighted to to take an interest in it. I I grew up from a GA background, so I was very much focused on that. But having taken an interest in it, it is it is a very kind of niche market but I have noticed in the last couple of years going to matches that there's a huge interest now in it and uh, the passion that people have in the League of Ireland for uh, their local clubs or the clubs that they've tied themselves to is huge and there's an endless amount of possibilities in the League of Ireland and you look at the progress like Sligo Rovers had a great result last week against Motherwell uh, St. Pat's I was at that game at Richmond Park they played Murrah who beat Spurs in the Europa Conference League last they played them off the park for the first half an hour uh, they got a one-all draw so I mean there's huge possibilities and you're hopeful that Shamrock Rovers will be in the, at a minimum the, the group stage of the Europa Conference League and I guess to people that are possible converts again to the League of Ireland in the coming years having teams competing there will get people to sit up and notice Yeah and I, look if uh, if Daily Night was fixed then all of a sudden there are uh, endless possibilities for for them. If if Dalymount and Talca were both fixed, mm. then then I think you could see a, a rebirth. Like um, and the fact that so many of our, our young players are actually playing League of Ireland before they go off to England and then they're making the Ireland team. Like there's a clear link. You know, Daniel talked about the football pyramid. Like it's fairly obvious. We haven't had one. Now we have one. Yeah. It's starting to bear some fruit. Um, we just need to stay the stay the course and hope that the FAI can. Um, fix their issues because they still haven't still haven't got a sponsor for the main men's national team you know it's, a, it's not a great scenario they find themselves in mm. but I, I think the positivity around the league has been pretty significant in the last kind of two years 18 months kind of thing and even on social media now I know Daniel mentioned there LOI TV and stuff like that but just having clips of games and you see the various bits of skill and good goals and stuff like that is is invaluable just to, to get a reach to kind of maybe the younger population as well to let them know hang on a second it's not all about what's happening across the water there's actually a local club close to you that's producing top quality players and that hopefully is going to have a good good atmosphere and reasonable facilities so that um, mm. when you go you don't feel like you're you're like um, a, a third world citizen or a sports citizen anyway uh, what's going on in the world? Well, we'll start with Gaelic Games. James McCartan has stepped down as manager of the Down Senior Footballers, a two-time All-Ireland winning player with the county. He took charge for the second time ahead of this season, but Down suffered relegation to Division 3. They made an early exit from the Ulster Championship and from the Talchon Cup as well. In his previous stint at the helm, McCartan guided his native county uh, to the All-Ireland Final of 2010. The Meath County Board, meanwhile, is set to officially confirm the appointment of Colm O'Rourke as their new manager tonight. The screen native won two All-Irelands as a player with the Royals and he's poised 
to take charge of an inter-county side for the first time. Rourke has been involved at club level in Meath, guiding Simonstown to two championship titles. Tommy Rooney is excited. That's the uh, that's all you need to know. The arrow is pointing up. Uh, and I can see why. It's like, you know, he's been finally getting his opportunity. If he puts the right backroom team in, there's no reason why Meath couldn't be on the fringes of Division 1 and therefore capable of causing some trouble to big teams. Yeah, and um, I think Lame Hayes made the point on Off the Ball last night that uh, Meath are one of the counties you would hope with their population and the tradition and history that they have that they should be competing uh, at that upper level. And I think Colm O'Rourke is the kind of person that would galvanise the support, uh, the passionate support that Meath have. And... Um, He'd be hopeful of an upturn in fortunes there, certainly. We were chatting a bit about Desi uh, yesterday. Conor McKeown has this story in the back of the Herald today that um, uh, there's been no official review of the season between the relevant parties just yet. Uh, Wildfire rumour in the capital over the weekend suggested that not only was Farrell's departure imminent, but that the county board had already moved to put in place a new management team as yet. That has not happened. Uh, So there's been no indication from either Farrell or the county board as to whether or not he's going to be back in 2023. Um, I suspect they want to move relatively quickly to get that speculation done and dusted Um, but it is also the type of thing where the Dublin County Board will not do anything until everything is in place and they know exactly what's going to happen right? Yeah like that and like for me when you're an inter-county manager at this point you're probably thinking I need to get out to club games I need to be watching players right now and I need to be kind of in you know, in the hot seat and, and ready to go already. So if there's going to be a change, it kind of needed to be made. It needed to be made yesterday, you would have talked, given how long they've been out of the championship now. Uh, although it's only, what, two and a half weeks at this point. So maybe it just feels a little bit longer. But yeah, they're going to be getting it done quite quickly at this point because I just think that the club season now, it's it's obviously going to be a key facet of the, the, the whole setup. So I don't know. Like, I think Desi Farrell obviously has an All-Ireland medal. He's got that to his credit. Does does he is it his decision? It seems to be his decision. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have thought so. So, yeah. um, yeah, you'd like to think that they'll they'll have some sort of like the, the rumors were mad. You were saying on the show yesterday that you that there was like a, a specific event that uh, was the the petrol behind the whole thing. Yeah, the, the New York fundraiser in Croker. I think it's just a lot of GA people came together at the weekend of the All Ireland very giddy and started to gossip. That's basically what happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, and I'm trying to think. We ha- we haven't seen any other appointments yet. But there was some wild gossip. The, the gossip didn't even include Colm O'Rourke. No, like no, it, it, didn't, it, included, yeah. it included some other stuff. Although Tommy, Tommy did yet. tell us afterwards he'd heard it on Saturday, but didn't believe it. I'm like, well, that's not, not that's not much use to us after the event. I mean, he'd obviously forgot his scoop hat. He'd left it at home. Like, is it a good? I can't believe it, or a bad? I can't believe it. Uh, it's obviously good now. He's excited. Okay. Um, there's one other quick story that I think we should be talking about on the back of the London Times today. The families of 9-11 victims have accused live golf players of lacking courage and living under a rock as they prepare to protest at this week's Saudi-backed tournament at Donald Trump's Bedminster course in New Jersey. This is interesting because this is a ratcheting up of pressure. Yeah, it certainly is. And they've, um, I think Phil Mickelson has uh, had to apologise to them as well, hasn't he? Or he certainly addressed it earlier on this year as well. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just a story that rumbles on and it's not going to go away anytime soon and there's also uh, Sergio Garcia has rolled back on his decision to resign from the DP World Tour he's, did he? he's going to cling on uh, in the hope that he might be eligible for the Ryder Cup down the line uh, uh, which is interesting on the back of the Stenson news oh so now he's like oh, actually I could be captain now possibly I don't need the money I, I, when, when I said that your tournaments were crap and that you were all horrible golfers I meant that your tournaments were really good and I, I really respect you all as people yeah um, I mean, I think the Ryder Cup have to take a very definitive stance in that they 
I, I, they probably will appoint a captain this week and uh, I would suspect if it's the likes of Thomas Bjorn that there'll be a fairly hardline stance towards the uh, players that have gone to the Saudi Golf Series and there was quite a bit of blowback towards Stenson last week I thought um, and probably justified in that he took that decision and you know they have to take it. They have to take a strong stance. I was reading too that um, a bunch of golfers who made the first live tournament, who actually did quite well, weren't invited back for the second one. So you want to be fairly certain that if you're resigning or leaving, that uh, you're in for good with live golf because they're like, well, actually, we can just cut you now. You yeah, know? yeah. We, we, you, grand, great that you were there the first week and well done and finishing third and winning six hundred grand, which was the most money you've ever made in your life. But we don't really. Who are you? I mean, sorry, <laughs> we don't even know who you are. So off you go. We've got some famous people coming in. Yeah, but there probably is also a degree that they would have to show some sort of loyalty to these players who took a huge gamble in going to live golf at a time when it Do wasn't think certain. They're the type to show loyalty. I don't. I don't. But they probably should. To be fair to them, um, because there's no, there's virtually no um, danger now to going to live golf really because it's established itself which is kind of worrying from a, an overall point of view. But the, the world ranking points is going to be the big decision, I think, whether whether they can get some world ranking points and, and then the qualification for major championships and stuff like that. But um, the Ryder Cup stuff this week is going to rumble on, I think. All right. Anything else going on? Uh, well, that story about Sergio Garcia, just to mention Shamrock Rovers against uh, Ludogorets tonight. Eight o'clock kickoff at Tallis Stadium. Uh, Shamrock Rovers trailing by three goals to nil. The first of the semi-finals as well at the Women's European Championships. England against Sweden. Bramalane, the venue for that one at eight o'clock. And of course, the Galway races uh, continue this evening. The action underway at Ballybrit from ten past five. Okay. Oh, and any, any sense of the Kerry footballers showing up at the Galway races? Maybe bring the cup up for a little, a little tour? That would, that, would, that would just be, just that, that would just not be a good idea. I would like uh, not be, uh, no chance, no chance. Like is 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 the Galway races actually like that? That would have just been that the universe would have exploded had Galway won the All Ireland and the Galway races was on this week. So so maybe maybe the, maybe Thursday maybe or Friday. Better, it's too early in the week, but maybe Thursday or Friday. I think they'd be welcome. I think they would be welcome because it was such a good final. There was no row. There was nothing. No reason for no them rows. not to. Yeah, that was that was actually strange. It's the the first final in a while where there was no rows. Um, like like that. So yeah, maybe they would be, but I I I'd be very surprised if that happened. Like first of all, Terry have two captains. They've got a couple of more places to go to over the next two nights. I think it's truly tonight again. We like that to Aston Stacks and then Kilmare, and then there's talk of like Dingle and I'm sure Foster will probably get there there with the day in the sun with the the two Cliffords as well. So and then I'd be got a lot to do. And a lot I, to do. Yeah. All right. Kevin Walsh is with us this morning. Kevin, good morning to you. How are you getting on? You can hear us all right, Kevin. Can you? Morning. Yeah. How are you doing? Good, thanks. There's the the line is just coming through there. The um, as Owen says, the universe would have exploded if um, the races were on and Sam McGuire had been there at the same time. Yeah, it would be very hard to uh, to manage to do them, but uh, we had plans in place that we we would have no problem with it. But uh, yeah, it's just a bit disappointing we didn't have it to go with the races. And uh, years gone by, I suppose people and particularly the players were. Always mind themselves from race week, and this was an ideal week to, to celebrate something if they'd won it. But uh, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. Uh, was there a point in the game where you thought, actually, you know what, we might get this done? So, can you hear me there, Jar? Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, was there a specific point in the game where you did allow yourself to believe that actually Galway were going to win? I suppose when he came back from 16-14 to, to 16 all, I think it was about the 63rd, 64th minute. It was, it was anyone's game at that point. So, you know, but. Uh, Look at it, it was it was an open game. It was it was a game that could have gone either way. Um 
I suppose the, the, at the end of the day, maybe the subs had a huge impact in Kerry where our, our own bench wasn't as, as strong as you'd like it to be. And uh, Kerry kind of pulled away in the end. But it was, it was there for us. It was there right through the game. And uh, it was it was up and down. I think it was six times it was level. So it wasn't the case that uh, it was never there for us, but it just, just wasn't to be in the day. Kevin, why was it an open game? Because everybody in the build-up was saying expect a, a cagey affair where both defensive systems really come out on top. What, what happened that allowed the whole thing to break free? I think um, I'm not so sure it broke free, broke free, but it was it was um, far more open than a few more games. But I would say that you know the, the stall was set out fairly early, where Kerry in particular we say threw a few high balls in early. I think they probably did go after maybe the full back line and and the goalkeeper or Galway, which wasn't tested against Derry. And uh, I think once those few kicks went in and out fairly early, uh, that kind of got bet the bank blanket defence a bit earlier. And then from the Kerry side, I felt that. I did say last, last week in the build-up to it, I still don't think they're there in relation to getting the sweeper right. Uh, it, it was fierce open, particularly for and Shane, actually, in a great game, obviously, but he was given hand passes in in front, bounce passes in front, which wouldn't happen normally with a tight defence. So it just, I'd say, it just was that bit more open where it wasn't, um, I suppose, the defences weren't given that chance to set up more as much as the, the last semi-finals and stuff. Because that carry defensive system, it seemed in the first couple of plays of the game, was going to be under severe pressure from Galway. Like I think they got to grips with Galway, or maybe Galway started doing something different. What What was your read in that, Kevin? Because it looked like the, Galway were going to break with the the tradition of Kerry giving up uh, maybe like one or two yeah. goal chances in this game. Yeah, my read on it, to be honest with you, I was, I was looking at it from high, high up in the stand, and I, I I thought that Kerry, to be honest with you, whether it was part of a plan or they decided to go after Galway, but they certainly didn't have the back protected and. Um, I know Morley would be the sweeper all the time, but there was, there was certainly no sweeper in front of those those dinky little passes, and um, it was wide, it was wide open for it. I could see it, so it was a lovely kind of a game for like to Shane to get there because he went into full forward quite quite a bit, and he was getting he was receiving balls in the middle three lanes, which 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 would be, I suppose, defensively he wouldn't be overly happy with that. Um, so there was there was straight runs, which didn't take a whole pile to have to manoeuvre to around defences. So. Look at Kerry, Kerry, I suppose they pushed up in the middle third, uh, but they definitely did, did leave the back open for the likes of Shane inside. Um, I think they probably tightened up. I noticed that after 25 minutes or so, where <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen O'Brien actually ended up back to him a little bit of sweeping, uh, but it wasn't an out and out um, um, tight Morley all day in, in the first 25 minutes or so. But I think they did start to cover up the back a bit more after that. It, we, we actually have a, a, a clip from um, GEA Sense on, on Twitter uh, that we can run out. So the, the score was 15-14 at this stage and um, Galway had a, a bit of an overlap. This is um, from the, the side camera where it's just it's just a Galway kick out that Kerry actually get a handle on. But then a, a multitude of Galway footballers break forward and unfortunately just the wrong option is taken. So it looks like Matthew Tierney has the ball and ends up... Uh, they recycle and a shot gets taken and it goes wide. But Johnny Heaney and Finian O'Lee are on the overlap on the inside. Was there just a, a sense maybe that Goey didn't quite fully realise the opportunity they had, that they could have been more killer instincts when it comes to going for goals for whatever reason? Yeah, I actually remember that, that instant live. I, I obviously can't see it here at the minute and I haven't seen it on television afterwards either. But I remember there was a John Johnny Heaney and one other at the time. I remember there, where there was an option and... I don't think it was October. Who was it? Matthew Tierney had the ball, was it? Um, I'm pretty sure it was Matthew Tierney who had the ball. And I think it's Finney and O'Lee. Yeah. That was uh, GA Sense on, on Twitter for the clip. Um, okay, I, I have to see it. I have to see it again. Uh, but I actually remember one of those lives where it was on. But I think it was probably, I'm not so sure, was it 
a belief of that or it was just one of those one of those situations where it wasn't seen or like you said was it just kind of going back and playing safe and holding on to possession um, I'd have to see that again to be honest. but look, I don't think it was down to that I think if you look at you know I, I noticed there maybe if you look at it I think it was 14 points each or after 47 minutes or so but that's that's quite high scoring if you you know if you look at it but I think Galway didn't score for another 16 minutes I think it was 63rd minute they scored and again and inside 30 seconds it got a second point to bring it back to 16 all and that was the finish of it so bear that minute of two points from 47 minutes on to 75 minutes Galway didn't score in that period and again you'd have to maybe look at the bench and say well, was the legs fresh enough I thought Paul Connery would have moved in and on full forward there for four or five minutes looking at life and it looked like to me he was moving in getting a break and you'd, you know at that point it, you know Kerry had, had more than gone off and half time so they had fresh legs there at that point so I suppose that's, you need to have your bench fairly loaded for an Ireland final day and I'm not so sure that Galway believed in the full bench they had what was your take on the Damien Comer situation? Um, I know Damien found himself outside the defensive line quite a bit. Um, definitely, he was marked completely. I done an article on how he was marked against Derry. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I, I spoke about how Rogers marked him, uh, not looking at the ball. Uh, Damien got loads of space where the defender didn't, didn't have a clue where the ball was coming from. This was different. Uh, Foley was right beside him, pulling at him all day, uh, never gave him an inch, and was you know was seeing the man and seeing the ball, which is a huge, huge difference. And I suppose Damien then found to get the ball in there early, or found it hard to get the ball in early, and found himself after making runs, being out around the offensive line, or defensive line for Kerry, which definitely didn't suit him. But look, okay, just one of those games, I suppose, that he didn't get into it uh, as much as he'd like. And I suppose if you, had, if you could get Shane Welch and Damien fired on the one day, you, you'd have massive opportunities. But it was uh, just one of, one of Damien's days that was, I suppose he was taken out of it. Is there a responsibility on, on the team to try and find a way to get him into it or is that because of the marking has been so, like, I wonder, is there better ball that needs to go in? Do they need to take some risks to get him into the game? At the start of the second half, for example, <clears throat> he's one-on-one. He's -on -one. Do you just pump a few balls in and see if he wins one out of three that's break even because the damage that he can do is, is significant or do you not take that risk because the stakes get so high? Look, the stakes are quite high and I mean just putting ball in for the sake of putting it in and hope rocks out in from the, from the centre of the field is probably not your best case scenario but look we've all seen Damien in the past in particular back post you take the ball down you know down lane one or lane five on the sidelines and one or two crossfield balls in the back post with Damien that's his, that's his bread and butter uh, and anybody would find it really hard to to, to work work with him on that. And it wasn't the case that Kerry had four or five people in front of Damien or, or anything like that. But I thought there was definitely opportunity to take the ball down, I said, on the sidelines and crossfield balls back post. The sweeper would be taking them completely out. And Damien has a great pair of hands. So I didn't see any of that happening on the day. That was something that would definitely I would have felt would have been a threat for two or three times. But back to your point, I suppose. The way the game is and, and how good people are at, at getting out with sweepers and, and, and moving forward, you just don't hoof ball in all day and hope it works out. But certainly two or three times it would be nice to see that. Well, yeah, I, I, I realise that the risk and so it's, it's, not, it's not a tactic and you can't, you can't use it as like, oh, we're just going to lorry ball in. But yeah. to try and get one of your key players into the game in a way that's going to be meaningful, sometimes you need to take risks. And maybe it's not, maybe it's not high ball, maybe it's something else. But some way to get Comer into the game at halftime, it felt necessary if Galway were going to be able to win the game. 
Yeah, and again, look at it. And it's not high. I know we can talk about risk. It's not a case that everyone should be afraid to kick the ball in. That's, that's, not, that's not the case. I mean, if we have to put it in a, a certain occasion. But there's ways of doing that. As I said, the back post, the crossfield ball, and definitely if it's a really tight mark going on, I mean, I spoke about this, this, the screening side of things. Yes, the other players can help the likes of, of Damien get, get involved. But again, you know, particular from, if you look at it, and this is, I suppose, the worrying point of it, other than Johnny Heaney, I think having two shots, one being blocked and not over the bar, I don't think any of our four forwards had a shot on goal other than Shane Walsh and Johnny Heaney maybe twice. And I suppose that is the worrying side of it. So if that's not happening, I suppose it could be another work even to release the like to Damien Comer. And then again, Damien himself probably will look back on this and say that he did have the ball a few times, particularly in the second half, just on the outside of the offensive arc where maybe he could have taken on the guy once or twice as well. So again, it was simply played at, 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 as you said, at a low risk uh, area because Damien is quite strong and could afford probably to take on one or two guys a bit more often. But just on the day, it didn't happen. Like, and that's kind of like one, one of the really interesting ways that you kind of look at this game because it, at halftime it felt the narrative was, you know, Galway are in the lead, but everything has gone their way. Whereas I was kind of half thinking, well, Comer has barely kicked the ball. I think he touched the ball once. And then on top of that, their kickouts were an absolute disaster. So if you add those two things into the mix and it's only a four point uh, defeat, which is pretty flattering to carry in the end. Like there are a couple of things that you look, you come away from it from a Galway perspective and think, Jesus, that All-Ireland was, was there for them. Absolutely, you know, and again, and I hear talk about Kerry going on dominating, dominating football for the next number of years. That's because of the age profile. I don't see that. I mean, from what I saw from Kerry uh, there, was that they'd be quite happy to get over the line. And if you said, if you take take into account the kickoff strategy, looked to be very poor. Uh, um, we'll say there was twenty five shots for Kerry. I think thirty or twenty five shots for Galway on goal. Thirty five for Kerry. Kerry at eight point or eight wides to one. I think at halftime or seven one. But at the same time, Galway were right in that game. So you'd have to say that, you know, and even with the bench, like, I mean, Kerry's bench made a big impact where Galway's didn't. And they didn't seem to, I suppose, believe they had to have impact on the bench. So, you know, you just wonder if if the likes of a Peter Cook, a, you know, a, a Tom Flynn, a Fintel Curran, a Kieran Duggan, you know, I don't know where them guys are at the minute, but you just wonder if the bench was loaded a bit stronger, particularly for the midfield area. Uh, Kerry had already moved their midfielders at halftime, so there was fresh legs there. So, it's just, you know, if you're taking all those into account and Kerry, you know, they're, they're flattered to get over the line with four points, you would, um, yeah, you'd say if just one or two more stood up, that uh, that was there for us. Would you make that uh, a, like a point of priority over the next couple of months to try and get at least one of those middle third players that you mentioned there back into the squad? Like We're not privy to, 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 to a lot of the conversations that have happened uh, under Joyce and, and the reasons for some people not being there, but on the evidence that you saw on Sunday, would you make it your priority to try and get a couple of them back in? I certainly would. I, I, I absolutely would. I mean, look at when I was there myself. I know, like the Sean Armstrong and guys like that had been, you know, maybe 31, 32. Uh, I'd certainly be looking to see where the, where where we can improve and whatever it takes to get, you know, players that, that will do a job for you there. Or some, maybe something like young that's coming through, whatever it's going to be. But there's certainly, you'd have to say that... Um, the bench probably wasn't loaded as much as, as you'd like it, in particular on the final day, you know, where where you have a huge pitch and that kind of stuff. Uh, and in particular where, as I said, Kerry made, made, did, their bench did make that impact. So, you know, yeah, look, at it's just it's just, it's just a pity. And I know people say, you know, that uh, nothing to lose and the first time up there and that kind of stuff. But I mean, 
you have everything to lose. It's an all-around final, and we don't know who or where and who will be there again. It could be the same two teams again, but we don't know. And uh, you've got to make the best of every opportunity. So, look, at it's still a learning curve. Jack Lynn stood up, which is great to see the young fella playing, playing well. Uh, Kenny McDay. Oh. That line has just gone. Um, yeah, so we'll get that line back, but... Um that that is interesting. I think it's a it's a fair point. The the two things there, you never know when you're going to get back. And there was a, a strong suggestion that this was going to be Conroy's last season because he's been around for so long. Uh, Kevin Walsh is back, so I may as well actually put that to you, Kevin. That, that, that's an excellent point you're making there about you never know when you're going to get back. Um, apparently Silk is going to go travelling for a year, and Conroy might be finishing up, so it won't be the same team irrespective of what happens next season. Yeah, look, there's always movements. I mean, every single year, regardless of what we think. Uh, all, but the movements for every team. <clears throat> I'm sure Kerry have movements and Dublin have movements next year. And God knows, you know, Dublin may be getting one or two of their players back next year that will be big players as well. So every time you get an opportunity, it's not a case of, well, there's nothing to lose here. You know, when you get to finals, there's everything to lose. So, and again, look, unfortunately, we've lost this one. But, like, they've performed well. Um, a few areas, you know, the kickouts need to improve. Um, you know, I suppose, like we spoke about, the middle area. We certainly need more options in that middle area and uh, get everybody you can to, to, to load your bench because in the day that loading your bench puts awful pressure on people that's playing as well in a good way because you're challenging each other every single night of training and you're also you know match time you might some people might say well you feel pressure players shouldn't should be able to deal with pressure and if there's someone looking over your shoulder that someone is going to come in because you're not playing too well you know you're going to have to raise your game to five percent and every time you have to raise it get five percent yeah yeah, and there's a bench behind you. I don't mean play out of fear here. I mean play out of respect for, for what's, what's coming behind you that you're going to drive on. And, you know, look at it. As I said to you, from what I've seen from the Kerry team the last day, albeit they're champions, now I wouldn't be saying at this stage they're going to go on and dominate football like 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 Dublin did. I think there's plenty of phrases. I wrote, I wrote an examiner last week as to why Galway should win this game. And I think if you look back on some of the points raised, I think it's 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 it's, it's relevant. So I would just say, look at it, it's it's... It's, it's a learning curve, but certainly get as many people in as many places as you can to be to be as competitive as you can. One last thing. Uh, when the opportunities came in the second half, when, when they got back in front and when they got back level, was there a bit at that stage where actually the inexperience of the group told in, in that maybe they just didn't fully appreciate where they could damage Kerry and they kind of fell back on being slightly conservative when actually what the game needed from a Galway perspective at that stage was to really go for it and to just ratchet up the ante as much as you possibly could. Yeah, and I suppose then you have to have the bodies to do that as well. So I, it's it's very hard to say from outside, but I don't know why, you know, Galway have experience because Kerry haven't that much experience either. I know they're Division 1 champions, but this is this is championship. So, and I suppose the experience Kerry had was, you know, 15 minutes coming down the stretch against Dublin. Uh, you, can, you can use that two ways. Uh, you can say, well, Kerry got over the line and, and they were they were resilient or you can say you know what this is the team that could be tested again uh, in that last 15 minutes if you put the pressure like you said put the ante up and again that's when back to the legs in this is <clears throat> I'm not so sure that everybody had the legs to go and put the ante up and that's where the bench will come in uh, that maybe you know the likes of runners and whatever that they could actually put the pressure on because at that stage you had two subs in for carry at half time I think you had someone else in again on the 43rd minute Potty Clifford again offered a blood sub for about four minutes. Got his break. Got his break. He came back in, and you know where. I think we only had one or two subs in. 
not that early, but hadn't had a huge impact. Yeah. All right. Kevin, we'll leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. No problem, Jordan. That's okay. Thanks so much. Kevin Walsh gave us his thoughts from a Galway perspective on the All Ireland Football Final. That's pretty interesting, Owen, to to get that sense that that's one that they're going to feel they left behind. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this is not going to make it any easier for Galway as well. But I think that if if they got to the same final next year, if they get another chance against Kerry next year, there's a chance Kerry might improve. Like I definitely feel that you know, the nervousness we were talking about earlier in the show I think that might have been a factor and they didn't play very very well on on Sunday there's a chance if they played each other next year Kerry could play well like and you just don't know when this opportunity will present itself like I mean the the thing is like if we're talking about Kerry and how Tally's come in and had had a great influence in in year one it does seem the transformation under Keane O'Neill at Galway has been pretty quick as well like this is a I know that the Joyce uh, on the sideline isn't new but uh, some of the backroom team that he's surrounded himself with is relatively fresh and that, that's one of the real sources of encouragement that you'd think next year they could they could maybe edge forward again it's just are the, the other teams around them are they going to race forward at a greater pace yeah and it's interesting that there was a list of of players that Kevin could name off there who he thought mm. would be able to have an impact from the bench and so you know there's no quick fix there might be a quick fix to the issue of them not having enough strength and depth yeah and like it, that's, that's a fascinating internal political conversation as well that, uh, as I said we were not quite sure the details of, of many of these departures and I'm sure Joyce had to take a tough stand and I'm not talking about so any of the players necessarily that, that Kevin mentioned there there's a whole line of, of other players that, that have departed the panel and I'm sure part of that is the manager laying down the law and having everybody on side and then to kind of not roll back from it but to, to try and go back to some of those players to try and get them back into the squad could be a challenge but that's that's the nature of management and it just looks in that middle third that they could do with an extra player or two there Yeah I think Tommy made the point that the team has transformed from the last Galway team who was in an All-Ireland semi-final and that's just a couple of years ago so there has been a huge turnover and maybe they can go back to some of those and say right now you see what the the standard is but you see what the prize is too get on board 0879180180 that's our WhatsApp number you can always uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day our uh, OTB Sports Radio schedule today is really good OTB Gold is Ronnie Delaney at 1 o'clock our classic episode of Dadcast on Redden's career retrospective at 4 and Jerry Eisenberg talking about Muhammad Ali in exile from 6 and then Joe's back from 7 tonight with the show you can follow us across our social channel subscribe to our YouTube channel and make sure to download the OTB Sports app so you can listen to all of our uh, sports content and analysis we're back after the break with Alan Quinlan back from New Zealand live in studio giving us his combined 15 from Ireland's historic tour victory first here's Liam Hayes talking about his old teammate Colm O'Rourke getting the senior football gig in Meath and more I mean we, we know each other a long time I was able to say to him what on earth are you what on earth are you managing Simonstown again for at your age I mean, Christ have you not more things to do with your life uh, and he volunteered very quickly ego he said uh, you know when you're offered a job ego kicks in and you say I'll do a good job on that and I'd say it was very much the same with me to be honest with you I think you know um, this is a very um, this is a very important appointment everybody in Mead knows that and Colin will know that and knew that better than anybody it's a it's an absolutely vital time in the history of the county if they don't if they didn't make the right appointment then Mead you know could go well they've been going through the floorboards for a long time and that's no disrespect to Mick O'Dowd or Andy McIntyre or people who were there before. They, they did their level best. But the county's record is that it's officially going through the floorboards and will be out of sight uh, at some time in the near future if something is not done. So I think Colin was aware of that, Joe. And 
I think when people knocked on his door uh, and, they, uh, and he was asked to do the job, um, uh, I think like everybody else in Mead, if you felt you were up to it, I think he felt, he felt it was his duty to do it. Mm. And also he wanted to do it. It's, it's an ego thing. I mean, you look at all the managers at county level. It's a, it's a privilege to manage a county at county level. I got, managed, I got to manage Carlo for two years, my dad's home county. And I remember walking around the training field some nights thinking, isn't this fantastic? Mm. There's only a few from the country. I may be Division 4 in Carlo, but, you know, I love this job. And to manage a mead for a, for a mead, for a mead man is a very proud thing to do. And Colin is a very proud man. And um, obviously he just couldn't say no. Yeah. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, Alan Quillen is back uh, from his trip. How was it? It was excellent, Jerry. Yeah, it was yeah. superb. Um, Were you there when the chicken was being stolen at the end? Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was gone home. I was actually in that bar about maybe an hour before that, and uh, it looked like they were having a good time. Yeah, they were. It was. I was surprised. It was. Um, I'm not surprised, but I, th- I was surprised maybe that all the New Zealanders, the All Blacks, were out as well. I yeah, know you have to have a few beers, and you yeah. can't kind of wallow at home. But they were all seem to be mixing and getting on fine. Yeah, and, uh, I did see some Justin Marshall footage as well later on, where he was getting into it with some of the All Blacks. Yeah, that was Akiri Ioani, which was um, I wasn't there for. It. I was actually we went. I went to the team hotel. Um, to meet Justin Marshall and Jeff Wilson because they were working with Sky and yeah. we kind of collaborated on a few pieces uh, for, for Sky New Zealand and Sky UK and Ireland as well and um, so we'd been together a fair bit over the tour so I went and met them there it was a quiet little kind of hotel bar off just a block or two off the beaten track that you know there was no passing traffic there yeah. and nobody really knew about it um, the players were obviously you know in a way in their own kind of private room and then they went out on out on, on the town if you like but um, so I was there about maybe half one two o'clock and with, with the Sky New Zealand guys and we walked up to that bar so I was with Justin Marshall for a good while before that and um, I actually left my bag back in the hotel when I went into that bar Mishmosh it was called and um, in Courtney Place in Wellington and I went back to get my bag and then I came back to the the nightclub bar, bar whatever it was and I just kind of decided against. I said it was around three, half three in the morning. I had an early start. Uh, I was keen to see a little bit of the. I needed to get packed up anyway and stuff like that. So I went back to the hotel and then I saw that the next day. But I don't know what happened. I think it was just a few verbals. But I kind of, you know, when 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 I'm on the other side now on the media side, I kind of feel that um, if I was in Justin Marshall's position of maybe critiquing. You know his home team. Like maybe I would have had to do and 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 talk talk about um, the disappointment of the losses. Maybe that filters back to some of the New Zealand players as well. And I probably have experienced a little bit of that before when you know I criticised Munster or if I criticised Ireland or something like that. Which is I feel a little bit for him because oh, he was doing his job. Well, you can say ten, you can say nine good things, Ger. No one hears about them. A team. Yeah. yeah, and you yeah. say one bad thing, and everybody hears it. And I think uh, Kiri Ioani would have been probably. <laughs> it's a little bit like the Roy Keane, Paul Pogba stuff, or um, they're making these Instagram videos and stuff. When, when you're winning, you can make any sort of videos or kind of. But when you're losing, and I think it reflects badly on Akira Ioani being the hard man 
at four o'clock in the morning um, giving verbals to to a guy who's a very good commentator. Doing his job. Um, yeah, and, you know, maybe he'd have been better advised to, you know, have verbals with Peter O'Mahony or Caelan Doris or Josh van der Fleer because they totally outplayed him. Um, and look, that's, you know, at the end of the day, I think... Savea and uh, Ioani actually did okay for, for, for the All Blacks in that third test. Um, he got a very good try, Ioani, I think, but he's not a regular on the All Blacks team and that doesn't mean you can't tell someone what you think of him, but I just think it reflects a little bit yeah, worse do it, on do him. Yeah, do it in the morning bit. in the cold light of day. Yeah, or do it, and do it at, a, at one of the training sessions, a media event or something, and when you're interviewed, say, I'm not impressed with what he's saying or, or whatever. But anyway, look, things happen with a few beers on board, and I was kind of surprised that they were all there. I think they had a curfew to kind of leave. Maybe the curfew was four o'clock in the morning. It was a late curfew, but I, I was surprised, given you know, you're in New Zealand, you've just lost a series, and the New Zealand public are pretty vocal and opinionated about about their team and they're not used to losing so I'm were not they, sure I would have been in that situation myself I probably they, would have been ducking away hiding somewhere for having a few beers were they good losers um yeah I think they were they were very gracious in in Wellington I think there was a few issues in Dunedin that I spoke to you about um again I even said that to Justin Marsh and Jeff Wilson when we were chatting um and they were kind of saying look it's just, you know a lot of students a lot of guys maybe not affiliated to rugby clubs they're just off for a, a bit of a party and uh, so it was a minority who kind of were a bit rude and stuff uh, at that game in Dunedin not to me but to some of the Irish supporters um, but you know the people in Wellington were and by and large they were very 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 gracious and complimentary of what Ireland um, achieved and I think Ireland gained unbelievable respect with the performances What do you think about them sacking some of the backroom team uh, it always feels a bit to me like scapegoats. Is that, is that uh, who's who picked them in the first place? Yeah, you either stick together or you go together. I think, and uh, that's that's. Um, but look, sometimes if the dynamic is not right, and you know, it's it's always a danger of coaches bringing in pals or friends or, or guys they've worked well with before. Rugby changes a lot. Um, the game is kind of keeps evolving. Um, and probably the Northern Hemisphere has probably shown that to the Southern Hemisphere and it's probably the biggest wake-up call for them that, you know, this X-factor brilliance or um, natural ability, there needs to be more to it than now because the game is like, it's a real science now. Sometimes it's quite boring to watch but, you know, recently we've seen and those test series in the summers shown that, you know, it can be very, very, very exciting as well. So I think it was... uh, John Plumtree and uh, you know I just think it's the two coaches going for the All Blacks is a little bit but maybe the people who will come in Jason Ryan has come in and I know he's highly thought of as a, as the forwards coach in the Crusaders and um, you know the, the New Zealand forwards looked to lack a bit of cohesion and understanding and implement any sort of force against Ireland in that in, in that second and third test and you know, if you look at Ireland scoring two mall tries, and I know that from being a, f- a forward before, it's it's kind of like front rows being pushed back in a scrum. It's it's you're being beaten by the opposition pack when the opposition are scoring mall tries. So I think they've jumped straight away and said our forwards are not performing well enough. Maybe they're not being coached well enough. 
um, and this guy Jason Ryan has done a really good job for the Crusaders and of course there's a number of Crusaders forwards there you know White Lock so it might work out but it, it's not a great sign no well it's a sign that there's well it's it's an admission that there's problems there um, what we did is uh probably walk walk ourselves into a bit of trouble here this morning Alan I hate this we, we've done this before um, we've talked about combined sides um, so I think maybe we should we should give ourselves a little bit of a, a bit of a shield here if you'd picked a combined team after the first test how many Ireland players would there have been in it? 3-4 um, there would have been 11 or 12 um, New Zealanders and that was based probably on about 15 minutes of absolute brilliance where they just blew Ireland away and and they were ruthless in the tries they scored. I think the six tries they scored in that first test, and I've probably said it number, numerous times, and, and and this was probably maybe the problem for New Zealand. At least four of them were preventable, and that sounds a little bit arrogant in saying that, but I think when you review it, um, they were probably soft tries for Ireland to give up, and that's probably... The week of that second test, I think Andy Farrell and all the players, and I know from from kind of listening to what they were saying and their body language, they really believed that they could fix some of the issues. And maybe New Zealand thought, well, same is going to happen again. Um, we're going to have you know individual brilliance that's just going to blow Ireland away, and we'll 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 up the tempo and we'll we'll keep the scoreboard just out of reach for Ireland. And um, but you know there was a number of New Zealand players played really well. Scott Barrett was brilliant in that first test, you know, and I think he was a loss for him in uh, in the in, third test. Yeah, a, definitely a big, big yeah. loss. And I think obviously moving into the second round, White Clock missing the, you know, kind of took a line out option and and took him out of the back row, even though you know traditionally he's a second row. But um, you know, if you go to the second and third test, then like being respectful, I think the reality is that Ireland were were pretty dominant in in. You know both those matches. I think the fifteen minute, fifteen twenty minute period after half time in the third test was Ireland were under the cosh, and you know when it came back to twenty five twenty two with Will Jordan's try, you think trouble. Uh oh. <laughs> but um, it just goes to show how mentally strong Ireland were. That's that the, up to the best field. part about yeah, it. Yeah, I think that was the most pleasing thing for people. But um, and then some of the defence at the end because that's stuff that you can really really build on and. They didn't get it easy, so you know, picking a, a combined team is is risky territory. I think we did it a few years ago, but it's based on kind of you, the most recent results. Yeah, it's yeah, not it's not forever. Of, no, yeah, it, it's it's not like it's kind of stupid in some ways, in a sense that it's you know, totally, there, there's yeah. only you're splitting hairs between certain players and a little bit of form um, at, a, at a period of time and. Just just for for so for all our New Zealand viewers uh, and hello to you all. Uh, after the first test, the only Irish players who you would have had in were Sheehan, Furlong, Josh van der Fleer and James Lowe. 11 All Blacks. And you, you could have had a row about some of those as well. But anyway, after the third test where we've just... Yeah, and history. if I just clarify that, you know, Ty Furlong was under a bit of pressure. The scrum was, wasn't perfect, but I just thought he's play around the field. Um I just thought Sheehan was incredible for all all those games. He's just non-stop. Yeah. And he's one of those kind of incredible footballers. He's a stepper, he's a, he's pace, he's acceleration, phenomenal player. Um, Josh van der Fleer for me in all three tests was sensational. If he stays fit for the rest of the year, he has to be World Player of the Year. 
Yeah, Very for close sure. To it. I think his his form is just incredible. And even in that first test, tackle after tackle after tackle after jackal at, at the breakdown, support play, hunting on the inside, you know, carries, um, and j- just the level of performance. James Lowe is on the wing in that for after the first test. Did James Lowe have a brilliant game in the first test? Probably not. He didn't do anything wrong, but Fenga and Nuku didn't really do much for for New Zealand either. So again, you 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 know you kind of that's a, a tricky one, and that's no disrespect. James Lowe was brilliant in Test Two and Test Three, as were all the Irish players. Can I just ask a quick question? Why does James Lowe not take all of the penalties that we have with his big left boot? Why does he not just kick the touch? Like why are we still letting Sexton do it? Just give your leg a rest there. This guy's got the he's got a cannon. Just let him do it because he does it sometimes. Randomly, they'll throw him the ball and he'll kick it and it goes miles. And then other times, you're like, just give it to him. Yeah, he he punts it a mile up the field, doesn't he? I think the accuracy part, and, and Johnny's probably missed one or two to touch yeah. in the last couple of years. Yes. And sometimes he looks a little bit fatigued. But, yes. Um, and look with this, this is still, he's, still, he's kicking is still fine, but I think maybe out of, out of your own half, maybe if you want to really go lamp it for distance. Which, you know, he can do. Like, he's one of the longest kickers of a ball I've seen in any sport. For you, is that fair enough? 11-12 New Zealanders yeah, after totally. Test 1. Absolutely. They win by pretty dominant scoreline. I think Ireland's performance in the second half was heartening. They were held up over the line four or five times. Um, the Yardi Sevilla try, you'd say, is preventable. It's brilliant out of him. He's well, an the incredible referee, player. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Sawakula try after scrum, again, preventable. Peter O'Mahony and the referee Carl Dixon probably you know got their Peter Manny wasn't happy that he thought Carl Dixon blocked him of course he didn't do that intentionally but you just look at the tries and the scores and think they're preventable and I just thought the heart and the kind of effort out of the team in the second half gave them some hope OK so we're going to flip it the other way so Jordy Barrett makes it Severis makes it Artie Sevilla makes it and is that it? Is it 3? Is it 12? 3? Um, for the Four. Oh, Will, Will Jordan. Jordan. Will Jordan, yeah. And Will Jordan, yeah. Will Jordan is one of the greatest rugby players. It's, well, it's hard so to great see. to watch, isn't he? he? He really only had that... that the that try. try. Yeah. But because he's so good, when you look at him, it's hard to leave him out of any team. Um, so I just think... You know, and then Robbie um, Robbie Hench has a 13. Gary Ringrose, you know, if he played the first test, he could be... I think they had a big problem with their midfield in, in, in the three tests. Um, although Rico Ioanni probably saved two tries. I don't know if you remember that period where he tackled Joey Carberry over the line. They looked at it, thought it was a seatbelt tackle. I think he held up another Irish player. He saved two tries in that first test. I think he's a winger. Uh, Quinn Tupaya scored a try from the kick through from Bowden Barrett in that first test. I think midfield is a problem for him. David Havili had COVID before the first test. He was probably going to start at 12. Um, but I think it's an issue. So I think two of the Irish, you know, Henshaw, Ringrose and Aki, two of them go in there in you know, oh, I think, three. Yeah, and so that so that that's the the, the backs. And obviously um Sexton played his best ever games for Ireland. And look, if you he, look at Jordy Barrett at full back, Hugo Keenan was absolutely brilliant. Um but you've just got this freak of Jordy Barrett. He's a phenomenal player and I think they probably would be better off trying to play him at 12 so again that's unfair Sevu Reese, you know that second test 
I think he made three tackles in one kind of phase and two turnovers in the space of about a minute. He's he's just kind of one of those outlandish players as well. So Tyburn-esque. Yeah. Um, but you've picked the whole pack apart from Artie Savea and uh, no one could complain about that because our pack was completely dominant in the third and, test. And do you know what? Anyone who's going to criticise this online or make comments or whatever, I'm fine with that. Tell me who else should be in here based on test two and three. So should Sam Kane be in there ahead of Josh van der Fleer? No. Should... Um, Whitelock. Well, Dalton Papalihi started at six in the second test and and then Akira Ioanni started at six in the third test. So should either of them be there ahead of Peter Mahoney based on the... Not on this test series. Two or three? No. no. Ardi Sevilla... This isn't a team that's ever going to play. This is an all-star team at the end of the, at the, end yeah. of the season. Ardi Sevilla over Caelan Doris. I thought Caelan Doris was brilliant in test two or three. You asked me about the performance in one. He wasn't... Well, he was on he, the verge of being dropped. In, like, he wasn't that prominent. Yeah. And I think he... In test two and three, he was outstanding. He showed what kind of a footballer and the carries, the pace. Um, he can run at full pace and just step someone in, going into contact and he gets through that little gap. Uh, but Ardi Savea is, is just a freak in the best... Uh, in the best way possible I think he'd 19 carries in that third test and you know two three players hanging off him he nearly dragged the All Blacks back into the game there was one thing that I haven't talked about on air yet there was footage on one of the Instagram accounts of uh, the Irish players at the end getting their photographs the players who the fans who stayed at the stadium asking the Irish players to take photographs and eventually Sexton give me the phone but Ardy Savea is, is over like bloodied this is like at the end still getting his photographs taken and taking the phone off people and going yeah okay no problem. I'll still post for photographs even though we've just made bad history here he seems like a good a top man yeah yeah seems so and I think they were um, obviously they were very disappointed but I think he was the one that could really walk around with his kind of head held high because yeah. he was so involved in everything yeah. um, James Ryan Tigburn the second row Whitelock was didn't really Sam Whitelock didn't really see him in that third test and Brody Retallick, um up to the point that he went off again. They did. They weren't really doing anything. Um, so, I think James Ryan was outstanding in the third test and in Test Two as well. So, who, and then of course Ty Byrne, what he did at the end with yeah. the, the turnovers and the big moments in the game. Who who's on your shortlist for Player of the Series? I would say um, you could pick three or four easily who were. It's probably unfair. Like I think Dan Sheehan, Tigburn, Van der Fleer, O'Mahony, um, Sexton for what he did, uh, Hugo Keenan. There's about six there that that just slightly edged ahead of the others. Yeah. Um, and who would your player of the tournament have been then? It's tricky. Um, I'd love to watch back the matches again and kind of go to them with a fine-tooth comb, but I think it'd be between Sheehan, Van der Fleer and O'Mahony. I probably would save Josh Van der Fleer given his high level of performance yeah. all the way through in each even, 80 minutes. Even in defeat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Martin Connell has been in touch on YouTube to say, good man, Quinny, you did a great job tracking the news over in New Zealand. You got plenty of thumbs up and cheers walking up and down the steps in the cake tin. You spoke well in the breakdown too on Sky. And then it's like whatever those symbols are. 
thumbs up, basically. So you've you've won a legion of new fans. Don't re- you usually get too many compliments, but anyway. Not from New Zealand, anyway. No, they were very good, I think, because I did go on the breakdown on a Sunday night, and uh, they were trying to press me and think, all right, I'm going to win next week in the second test. And I was... The, what, I, what I really believed, Jared, was that they would be a lot better and they would run them close. I think... You were trying to get it out of me that it was going to be a disaster, and which we well, were going to. It felt, that it could I, go it either felt way. after the Maori one and the first one. God, yeah. this is going to be a long tour. But I think when you're on the ground, and it's kind of hard to explain when you watch training, when you see the players, when you listen to the press conferences, and you feel a little bit of energy, it's kind of strange. Some people will say that doesn't make any difference, but I I think the psychology in sport makes a difference when you're kind of back. Of course it does. And I just thought Ireland really kind of had probably looked at the video, were frustrated with some of the decisions that went against them. And Well, Omani's post-match interview was unbelievably positive after the first one. And I was very taken aback by it. But he was like, we're right in this. And at the time, before, you know, in the in the heat of that moment, you're like, we weren't though. We, we just got slaughtered. But actually, they he knew. He knew that... They'd yeah, been held up I over think, the line. You know, it does it does make a difference tries. that they did a lot of these guys have beaten New Zealand a number of yeah. times in the last few years. So that was the difference, maybe between the other second tours. half was the key. I thought the easy thing to do would be, and probably we maybe we expected it at halftime. This is going to get nasty and ugly in the second half. But Ireland, you know, I know they still lost the game. I think it was thirty two seventeen, but. Um, Gary Ringrose's try, Bundyaki's try, and then the amount of times in possession and, and the amount of times they were held up over the line gave them belief that if we fix the scrum issues um, yeah, and and a couple of line-out issues um, and probably a couple of kicks that they put into the backfield where they didn't manage their kicking game as well, um, I think they felt really that they would have a great chance in the second test. And the impressive thing for me was because I think the great thing about winning the third test is there was kind of reasons to say, well, the sending off the yellow cards, that affected New Zealand and we we, we kind of got the luck on the night. And we did get a little bit of a bounce to the ball here and there. Um, but I just thought that third test, that first half and the third test, unbelievable. You know, the kick chase, Jared, the the organisation. They were like, savage. I didn't mention Robbie Henshaw and Tyg Furlong, but I tell you the tackles that those guys put in. And when you're there and you're kind of looking down and you see the work rate of some of the players, yeah. like Robbie Henshaw made some incredible reads there that stopped um, the likes of, of, of Sebu Reese getting the ball or, or Bowden Barrett getting on the outside channel. Um, I think from that 50-22 that Peter Romani did in the second test, um, uh, Richie, Mo- the, we lost that line-out. I think it went over the top. They tried to move it straight away, and Bowden Barrett gave this kind of wide overs pass, which means you can the pass is going to your outside, and it's going to cross you. And and he was swerving to 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 get outside the defender. Robbie Hensham had this incredible read, man ball tackles. Severis comes in and tackles one of the Irish players through, yeah. past the rock. Yeah three points to Ireland you know yeah. it could, it's moments like that well, that goes to try at the other well, end the, he's, like, oh. if, if, if Robbie Hench has not switched on he's not such an intelligent yeah. brilliant defender with a wonderful work rate they could be gone into the field alright well um, 
I hope your social media is fine after this. I think it will be. I think they're not in any position yet to come after you. But they'll they'll save it for next year or the World Cup quarter final. Well, that's and the thing, <laughs> you know. And I look back at the the team. And we think may, maybe this will all happen again, and we end up playing them in, in the World Cup quarter final or France if we get out of the group and if we beat Scotland. And will we have the disappointment? But this tour was was incredible, and they deserve massive credit. So, and I think Andy Farrell got the mood right each yeah. week, and his yeah. coaches they were absolutely brilliant. No, very impressive character. Quinny, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, sir. That is uh, uh, OTBAM for you today, live each morning. Brought to you by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. Oh, are you coming back? Are you just moving to carry again? Is that what's happened? That's it. Yeah, that's it. No, I'd be. I mean, I've been existing in Dublin for long enough with Dublin winning on Ireland, so I'll be back in Dublin tomorrow, back in studio. Right. Okay. I thought that you were like gathering copy for us last night, and that we were going to have loads of color and stuff from the from the uh, homecoming. That was like, I'm going home to cover the homecoming. You were going home to get pissed, basically. There was no agreement that I was going to go home to work. <laughs> just assumed. I just assumed that you would have been there experiencing it and bringing it to us as opposed to everybody having to imagine from the croakiness in your voice, which in its own way painted as good a picture as any of the content that you failed to bring us. This, this is colour. What you're hearing right now is colour. It is hashtag content. OTBM back tomorrow morning from half past seven where we'll be joined by the award-winning football journalist Jonathan Wilson for our first ever episode of You Had To Be There where Jonathan will pick the best individual performances that he's seen in person. Also, we're live with the former Ireland captain Emma Byrne as England play Sweden tonight in the Euro 2022 semi-final. We're going to hear from Limerick Seamus Hickey on what made Brian Cody's Kilkenny sides so formidable. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.